welcome to the Movie Planet. I'm your host, Joe, and with me are the Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf the Grey to my Thor and Oakenshield, JC and Joel. How are we doing today, boys? I love it when I'm called a hobbit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that? Yeah, which one do you want? So you want Bilbo? Well, I have hairy feet. Oh, that's fair. Do you not have, do you have hairy feet? Because I like have, I was always called a hobbit in college and stuff like that because I wore, I wear sandals. If I have an opportunity to wear sandals and flip-flops, I do it. Yeah. And like, I have hairy feet. And people are always like, dude, you're a hobbit. I'm like, is it because I'm short? No, your feet. Okay. (laughs) And I would ask that because usually the person saying it was shorter than me. Okay. Luckily, I had friends shorter than me in college. Not all of them, but a lot of them were. And you got me. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have to put the awkward silence in. <laughs> no, actually, now that I think about it, you were you're taller than the the kid that that I'm thinking of that that called me a hobbit. You're taller than him. Oh, tall enough to ride a regular sized horse. Yeah, call me a tuck. There you go. <laughs> this week we'll be beginning our franchise review of the Tolkien saga, which encompasses the Hobbit trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now we discussed this; they'll be grading these as one complete franchise and not two separate trilogies. Yep. This is one uh, nutshell. Yeah. To start ourselves off this week, we will be talking about the 2012 fantasy The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, discussing its role in the saga, and analyze it, grade it, and either induct it or inc- exclude it. This week, we are talking about 2012's The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, directed by Peter Jackson, screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, Peter Jackson, and Guillermo del Toro, adapted from the J.R.R. Tolkien novel The Hobbit. Starring Ian McKellen as Gandalf, Martin Freeman as Bilbo Baggins, Richard Armitage as Thorin Oakenshield, Ken Scott, Graham McTavish, William Kircher, James Nesbitt, Stephen Hunter, Dean O'Gorman, Aiden Turner, John Callan, <laughs> Peter Hamilton. Are you still keeping up? Yep. Jed Brahe, <laughs> Mark Hadlow, and Adam Brown as Balin, Dwalin, Bilfer, Bomber. Bofer, Bomber, Feely, Killy, Oin, Gloin, Nori, Dory, and Ori, who I learned I really like in this movie. <laughs> Andy Serkis as Gollum, Hugo Weaving as Elrond, Kate Blanchett as Galadriel, Christopher Lee as Saruman, and Sylvester McCoy as the wizard who needs to rub a comb through it, Radagast the Brown. <laughs> JC, this is really your wheelhouse, so why don't you tell us about the making of this film? Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies. I make films. All right. So... Let's just sit back now. So when... When it comes when it comes to the making of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, something that Peter Jackson did that was really cool was he literally essentially filmed all of the making of, which I didn't know you could do this. I, I knew in DVDs they had like the special features and all this. But when I first saw it with Lord of the Rings, I was like, this is a, like I feel like I learned how movies were made watching The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So for this film, they're actually titled Appendices Part 7. And it's... Part 7 because it's actually continuing from The Lord of the Rings. So even though we're starting chronologically with The Hobbit, in terms of the appendices, it's after because they're doing it (laughs) after Lord of the Rings. So anyway. Uh, This first section is called Chronicles of the Hobbit Part 1. Peter Jackson said in 1999, quote, that's it, I'm done. He was talking about his time in Middle Earth, but apparently everyone on the crew wondered, right, that's done. Now when do we start The Hobbit? Jackson at the OneRing.net rap party said, quote, let's not shut down the OneRing.net just yet. That was 2004. 
According to Philip Boyens, the idea for doing The Hobbit was always there. Unfortunately, though, there were rights issues involved that were quite complicated. Ah. Warner Brothers and MGM shared the, per- or the publishing rights to The Hobbit. This came as a result of a decision made way back in the 1960s when Tolkien himself originally sold the film rights. Is that when they did the cartoon? It is. That was the when they did right? Bat, the Bass Rankin cartoon show. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. 2008. So this is 1960s. 2004, he says, don't shut down one ring.net yet. 2008. 2008 is when people started actively working to figure out the rights issue. So MGM and Warner Brothers, they start talking to each other in 2008. Okay. At that same time, Peter Jackson makes this decision. Quote, I don't need to direct this. I was always unsure whether I should direct The Hobbit. I didn't really want to end up in a position where I was thinking back to what I did in Lord of the Rings, feeling like I was competing with myself. Mm. But on the other hand, we kind of feel a sentimental attachment, (laughs) a sort of ownership to the Middle Earth that's been put on the screen, end quote. To move it forward... Peter, Fran, and Philippa pitched the idea that they would be involved in the script, they would help write the script, and they would produce it. So that got, that three new writers on it. No, it's the original. Oh, okay. They're the same people that wrote Lord of the Rings. Gotcha. All right. So Peter, Fran, and Philippa tell MGM, they tell Warner Brothers, we're going to write the script, and we're going to produce it, but Peter's not going to direct it. That's essentially what they say to get everybody on board. Yeah. Peter Jackson, very early on, wanted Guillermo del Toro to direct it. Hmm. In May 2009, so they've already been talking for a year, in May 2009, Guillermo is hired, and he starts working on the script and doing pre-production. Pre-production is designing the armor, the sets, the storyboarding, this, all of that stuff. Right. He, he starts setting all that up. Unfortunately... Legally, because of the rights issues, they did not yet have a green light to start the film. What? <laughs> so they started, wait, hold on. They started pre-production, but they didn't have the rights to even do the pre-production. Yes. Okay. I, I, I'm not even done yet. I was going to say, this is very Alien 3 right now. Yeah. <laughs> It's also so, very Warner Brothers. So, yes. I was going to say, so hold on. So legally, they didn't have the right to greenlit. They, they legally had the right to do pre-production. They didn't okay. have the right to shoot the movie. But Warner Brothers was paying for pre-production. All right? Okay. They just couldn't shoot. So Warner Brothers would give them money to do all the pre-production. They wouldn't give them money to shoot the actual film. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, starting in May 2009, will do a year and a half of work on the film. A lot of money is being spent. However, all of this money is being spent, all of this work is being done, but still no deal had been finalized between MGM and Warner Brothers. (laughs) Then, just as the deal is about to be finalized, MGM suffers huge financial setbacks. I think a ton of their movies bombed at one point. I didn't actually take the time to go back and look, which would have made sense for me to do. Maybe Joel's on it it right now. But right around 2009, 2010, suddenly MGM was suffering financially. As a result, Guillermo's shooting dates kept getting pushed back again, back again, back again, and again. (laughs) See what I did I did, (laughs) yeah. All right. Uh, It literally got to the point uh, in 2010 where Guillermo had to make a choice, and it was a very hard choice. He was given a hard start date with a six-month delay. 
So he's already been working a year and a half. He's told to wait another six months, or he can leave and start working on one of the other projects he's been passionate about. Pacific Rim, I bet. I think it was Pacific Rim at the time. Mm -hmm. He chooses the latter in May and June of 2010. If you want a list of movies, um, not a ton of great ones. <laughs> so, uh, you want 2008 or 2009? It would probably be, well, it could be 8 or 9, which yeah. would lead to them being in trouble in 2010. Well, there was a lot of movies in 2008, but there are also a lot of movies I've never heard of. What were the highlight movies that you recognize? Uh, Soul Men, Quantum of Solace, Valkyrie. Quantum of Solace was the bad Qu bond, apparently. I was going to say. Uh, Valkyrie didn't do well. Valkyrie did not do well. No, it didn't. Uh, ooh, the long shots. I don't even know that one. Charlie Bartlett superhero movie. So, a bunch of stuff wow. like that. So and yeah, no wonder they were in financial trouble. Two thousand nine, they only did three movies. What three? Pink Panther two. Ooh. ooh. The taking of Fe Pel Pelham one two three. Pelham one two three. Pelham one two three. Which is a remake. And fame. and it didn't do well. No. Pelham fame. Oh, that's right. There was a fame movie, too. I forgot about that. Oh, jeez. MGM. What the no, heck? Yeah. No wonder they, they were in trouble. They didn't get back on their feet until 2010 when they came out with Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> Which, by this point, this movie was... Never mind. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So, Guillermo del Toro leaves in May and June of 2010. Okay. Everyone working on the film for that year and a half thought the film had ended right there. They actually say on these appendices that we thought we were done. We thought the production had folded. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter, Fran, and Philippa, who were producing this, they needed to find a director. Now, everybody in the outside world instantly thought Peter just stepped into the role. He didn't. He apparently looked for director after director after director. So he was pretty insistent on not directing this film. Yeah, he was. For the longest time, he was. Do you think Do you think at this point it was because it wasn't even his film as Guillermo's at this point because of all the pre-prod and all that stuff? Well, hold that question okay. for this next part. All right. With money being spent, anyone knew, so any new director that they asked to come in, that director wanted to do their version of The Hobbit, not Guillermo's. Yeah. All of the work had been done was Guillermo's vision, Guillermo's ideas. Peter Jackson stepped in after realizing the best thing to save the project would be not have a brand new director who's wanting to start all over from scratch, but he felt he could take what Guillermo had already done and still adapt it to a Peter Jackson vision. Gotcha. So that is what he did. Does that kind of answer your it question? It does. It, it, and now it adds questions, which is which pieces of these can Del Toro claim and which pieces can Peter Jackson claim? Oh, watch the appendices. <laughs> they, they literally go, oh, they literally go, oh, well, that's a piece of armor that Guillermo did. Yeah. I, I don't like it, so let's change it a little bit. So that's the thing. It was almost like it was the pre-production of the pre-production. Yeah. Like, Jackson would look at everything that Guillermo did and he would pick and choose what he liked. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't like it, he got rid of it. But it was at least a starting point. Whereas, like, they're not coming up from scratch. Jackson would say... You know how the armor does that? I don't like that, so let's change it to this. And, like, it would literally be something simple like that. So we could actually say that this is Alien 3's background, but done properly. Yeah. Because Alien 3 biffed it on every chance they could. This, they still end up with a very, very sequential plot-driven movie. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Uh... So Peter Jackson saved time by essentially doing a year and a half of pre-production. When he is officially hired as a director, he saves even further time by doing a year and a half's worth of pre-production in a couple months before shooting. He literally, <laughs> when he's hired as a director, he has five months. And how long for LOTR? Uh, he had two and a half years. <laughs> 
the casting director, at the same time that this is all going on, casting directors are hearing back from their actors and their agents, and no actors are committing. Ian McKellen hadn't committed. None of the actors were committing because the studio still had not greenlit the movie. <laughs> so even though they've now figured out the director thing, they can't get anybody casted in the movie because none of the agents will okay it because the studio hasn't greenlit the film. Because they're still in the legal battle. It is at that point that Peter, like, apparently a bunch of studio heads, or not studio heads, that's wrong, production heads, mm -hmm. like the armor department, the makeup department, like all of these production heads go into Peter Jackson and essentially say, we can't do anything until we know if this film is moving forward or not. And Peter Jackson more or less looked at him, he's like, yep, you're right. And he, like, got on a plane to uh, L.A. or New York yeah. or wherever their studios are. And, uh... He starts working uh, with it. So now people outside aren't taking the film. It was then that Peter goes to the studios, and he works with another four or five months <laughs> with MGM and uh, Warner Brothers. They finally figure out the uh, financial problems, and so what are we in, like... The later part of 2010, yeah. the early part of 2011, <laughs> it is finally greenlit. <laughs> I think it was uh, August of 2010, maybe September. Okay. Maybe September of 2010. It's finally officially greenlit. <laughs> Which means that they finally get a budget. Which means they finally get a budget. And so how long did it take to work out these legal issues? 2008 was when they yeah. first started. End of 2010. All but, right. but they finally got a budget. Did they change the start or the, the, the release date, though? Five months. So they pushed the release date five months. Yes. So okay. So he now has. Oh, I should have written it down because they say it on the thing that it was like the original start date was like Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. Now it was like half a year after that. Okay. So whenever that was, be um, November. Yeah, maybe that. I want to say that sounds about right. November yeah. of 2011. So November of 2011 is when they start shooting. I think when it was finally green lit. Peter Jackson had five months to start shooting. He had two and a half years before the Lord of the Rings, however. Um, now, I did write as a caveat, he has been involved over this entire time as a producer. But not as the person. That's not as the person actually making the final yeah. decisions, no. But he does know what's been going on as gotcha. a producer. Here are some of the really cool stats. They built over 100 sets over four different studios. Like, physically built hundreds of sets. For this movie or for, for all three? For all three. Okay. For all three. They shot using a night director, so they did 24 hours of shooting, production, the whole bit. Mm -hmm. Wow. And sets, at some points, sets would end up being built one day or even two days before they had to shoot the scene. <laughs> Was Andy Circus the night director? Uh, Andy Serkis was the second unit director. Okay. I do not think he was the night director, but right. Andy Serkis was the second unit director. I watched some of this, and it is pretty impressive what they can do with the sets indoors. Yes. With, like, the rocks and the cliffs and, and everything that they have. Yeah, and, and I don't go into it because it's in one of the sections that I don't take time to talk about. But what Joel is talking about is there is one point where Peter Jackson has blocked a scene in the Troll Forest, the Trollwood Forest. And Peter Jackson literally gets to the set that day, and he looks, and he's like, this this doesn't work. Like, literally how you've built the, built the set, mm -hmm. even though you did everything I told you, doesn't work. And he says, you guys need to open, like, you need to make it bigger and widen it out. And so they had to move, I think, a hundred, maybe seven to ten tons of dirt, plus all 
of the like <laughs> fake trees. It was essentially the guy on the video said it was like four days worth of work that they had to get done before lunch. And Jeez. so the, the production guys, they just sort of put their heads down and start getting to it. And this is sort of that like, yay, New Zealand, yay, Kiwi moment in it <laughs> that that does kind of make me want to like have a bunch of Kiwis as my friends, like because they they essentially these production guys or stage guys start working. Suddenly, every department on the entire film stopped makeup everybody and you just see everybody descend on this studio and they essentially did four days worth of work in two hours wow. yeah like it was you just, won't see the brits doing that it's just impressive <laughs> to watch and all of these people are doing all of this backbreaking work because like that's the parts that's mind-boggling for me and like introduced me to like wow this is how movies are made a man looks at something and says yeah i don't like it and that gives 400 people three days worth of work just because you looked at something and said, yeah, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's also a sacrifice in the budget though, because they've allocated that money for that. And now they got to yeah. double it down. Exactly. So an exponentially they don't expect. Yeah. Well, were you guys excited about the Hobbit when it was released in 2012? Joe? Okay. Okay. Uh, for me, uh, the Hobbit was my first introduction as a child into middle earth. It, in fact, this book that I'm holding right here is my mother's copy of the book, and it used to sit on a very high shelf in our in our bookcase. And I used to climb up all the time and just stare at the map. And then when I was like, when I got old enough, I started reading it, and I loved this book. I must have read this book at least 10, 12 times between the ages of like eight to thirteen. Really? Oh yeah, I loved it because it was very episodic. Mm -hmm. Every single chapter is a different adventure, if you will, yeah. or, or, or a different setting. And so you could read a chapter, put it down, and then be like, okay, I can read the next one two days from now, and it won't really change the flow. Mm -hmm. I understand. It's a very simple story. When I found out after the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy that they were going to adapt The Hobbit to an on-screen presence, my anticipation level went through the roof. I was so excited. At the time, it was one movie. They were just saying one movie, and at the time, at that time, they were all saying Sean Connery may be playing Gandalf. Uh-oh. Yeah, that was something that was it, that was going on at the time because they wanted him originally for the Lord of the Rings, I believe. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 no. I got, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> Good call, Sean. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Ian McKellen said, thank you. <laughs> um, then when they split the film into two movies, this was around the same time that this started becoming a thing. Deathly Hallows had done it. Twilight had done it. Uh, and so they were saying, oh, we'll, we'll split this book into two movies. I went... Well, okay, you know, sure. I could use a little bit more Middle Earth. Why not? Then when they said they were going to split up into three movies, I said, this is a children's book. You would not split the cat and the hat into two movies. Why would you split this into three? So I kind of went into this movie at the theaters, arms crossed, saying, prove it, be Lord of the Rings. It was not meant to be Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be a children's adaptation of the children's book. It was for kids. Lord of the Rings is for adults. This is for kids. I went in going, be Lord of the Rings. And it wasn't what I expected. And so after all, they made the Lord of the Rings movies a movie per book. Why take a smaller book and make it into three movies? The math did not add up in my head at the time. And I was worried. Joel? Yeah, I was really excited. Um, I remember when I was with my friends in college, we were all Tolkien fans. I didn't know a lot of uh, what he did early on because I had a terrible attention span and was never able to like fully finish the book <laughs> but i don't know how many times when i was a kid i read the first chapter of the hobbit i probably read the first chapter 10 times before i ever actually finished the book mm -hmm. like my it was always something in the back of my mind so we would there was a laser tag place in knoxville growing up and my uncle 
when we always went, his uh, code name, because you could like get a code name and scan into the gun. So, so when you got shot, it said, you got shot by, and his name was Gandalf. So I was like, I'm getting wrecked by Gandalf today. <laughs> so I always had this like back, this thing in the back of my mind, and I enjoyed Lord of the Rings because they came out when I was younger, but I was more excited for The Hobbit in theaters because I was, I was a little bit older. I could appreciate it more. My attention span had expanded. And so I was honestly really, really excited to see it in theaters. And okay. I want to say I even saw it in 3D. JC? I wasn't. You weren't excited about this? I was not excited to see it in theaters, because that's what the question is. Yeah. Were you excited about The Hobbit when it was released? Well, actually, now that I say that, I, I need to contradict. Was I excited for The Hobbit? Yes, but I knew I wasn't going to go see it in theaters. Why? Because I knew there'd be extended editions. <laughs> I had actually made the point that after The Lord of the Rings, I loved Lord of the Rings. I loved what we had done, or what they had done, and sort of living through those that... I made the mistake with Lord of the Rings. I bought the theatrical. Then they made the they extended it, and I bought those. Mm-hmm. I consciously made the decision that, no, I'm not going to go see it because there's going to be extended editions. Is that tough? It was because then <laughs> there there was a period of time where Peter Jackson was like, no, this this is the film. And I was I remember, so mad at myself. <laughs> I was so pissed. I'm like, what? I, I made the worst decision ever. Oh, I, I couldn't see. It. Oh, like I literally like remember like reading something online or an article, or something. and I'm like, I'm such a moron. <laughs> but you also don't respond well to 3D movies. No, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Well, but then Christmas happened, and what did we find on Amazon? Was there it? it was the extended edition. <laughs> I was like, ha ha, vindication. <laughs> and so I did. Uh, I I bought the extended edition and I watched it and I loved it. Oh. And I know people are like, but you see it. And I I do. I love movies and movie theaters. So I understand that I missed some of it. I just made the conscious decision at that time that I wanted to get everything. And so, but I ended up loving that first movie that I did go see the next two in the theaters. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you sell out. (laughs) But hey, didn't they re release though? The Hobbit, Unexpected Journey, the extended version in just, theaters for a little before, bit. Yes, they did. Did you go to that? Uh-uh. No, okay. Uh, and probably because I didn't have anybody go with at the uh, time. I'm betting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we didn't know each other yet. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have gone. An extended version is... It, it, the, the, the comfort of being at home to watch an extended version is a lot better than sitting in somebody else's seat. That's true. Well, I'm going to start with the synopsis this week. So before we start on this, JC is well-versed in the extended edition of this film. And while we're going through the synopsis, please, JC, feel free to insert what the extended editions are to add to this movie. And I thought about this. I will try. Yeah. I don't know the theatrical edition, so I don't know what's missed. Well, that's why when I go through it, you'll be sitting there going, oh, wait, they missed this. Oh, okay. okay? <laughs> I'm going to be like, eh. Yeah, because what I'm about to read here is the theatrical version. It's the one you're going to see on TNT. It's the one you're going to see on TBS. Unless they have a Christmas time marathon when they decide to do the Cimmerillion at some point, go, we're going to play all six extended versions of this movie for 39 hours straight. There you go. (laughs) I'll be all right. Just let me sit quietly for a moment. You've been sitting quietly for far too long. Tell me, when did doilies and your mother's dishes become so important to you? I remember a young hobbit who was always running off in search of elves in the woods. Stay out late. Come home after dark, trailing mud and twigs and fireflies. A young hobbit who would have liked nothing better than to find out what was beyond the borders of the Shire. The world is not in your books and maps. 
It's up there. I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a Baggins of Bag End. You are also a Took. Did you know that your great-great-great-great-uncle Bullroarer Took was so large he could ride a real horse? Yes, well, he could. In the Battle of Greenfields, he charged the goblin ranks. He swung his club so hard, it knocked the goblin king's head clean off, and it sailed a hundred yards through the air and went down a rabbit hole. And thus the battle was won. And the game of golf invented at the same time. I do believe you made that up. Well, all good stories deserve embellishment. You'll have a tale or two to tell of your own when you come back. Can you promise that I will come back? No. And if you do, you will not be the same. We start with a prologue. During the preparations for his birthday party, an elderly hobbit named Bilbo Baggins is writing a memoir. He describes the fabulously wealthy dwarven kingdom of Erebor and its relations with the human kingdom of Dale and the wood elves ruled by Thranduil. The dwarves are ruled by Thror, the king under the mountain, not to be mistaken with Thor, the god of lightning. <laughs> and the neighboring leaders pay homage to Thror. Dwarves, elves, and men prosper. The caves under Erebor, a.k.a. the Lonely Mountain, rich in gold and jewels, are mined for an uncountable hoard of wealth. The dwarves find the Arkenstone, their most valuable jewel, which Thror displays above his throne. One day, Thror's kingdom is attacked by a dragon, Smaug. I'm going to call him Smog because it just rolls either off my mouth. I hope you guys don't mind. That's, That's what I right. say. Okay. I'll say Smog. Okay. <laughs> Smog destroys much of Dale and makes short work of Erebor's defenses, despite the brave and canny leadership of Thor's grandson, Thorin. The surviving dwarves flee, and Thorin is embittered when their erstwhile ally, the elven king Thranduil, declines to help them. Previously, Thror and his kin had refused to share diamonds mined from the mountain with the elves, which strained the alliance. Let's talk about this prologue. JC? Now, the diamonds. Yes. In the theatrical edition, do you see a scene where there's a box of diamonds and they open up the lid and Thranduil walks towards it and goes to reach for the box and then they slam the box in front of it? Nope. Yeah, you see it, that in the extended yeah, version, though. See, that's a pretty important scene, and here's why it's important. Thranduil owned the necklace. Okay. Not just the diamonds. There was a necklace in there that, that Thranduil had essentially... The, the story behind it is that he gave it to Thorin for protection or whatever, and he would come back and claim it yeah. one day. And so he was coming back to claim it and to see the wealth of Erebor. Well, he didn't give it back. And yeah. so that is the start of the rift. And they literally say in, in, the over, in, the, in the talk over, the elves say they didn't pay them back. The dwarves say that they reneged on a payment and... Bilbo more or less says old alliances over petty things. And like, I love like the little like knowledgeable vignettes from Bilbo and some of those, but like, as you were saying that I'm like, are the, so that is the first kind of big scene from the extended edition that I think was missed because that explains if you just have them, Oh, well they didn't help. Well then it makes the elves sort of look like dicks. Like the prologue looks fantastic. Oh yeah, it really does. The Ar I love the fact that the Arkenstone corrupts its owner. <clears throat> Ring. I love the introduction of Smog too, because you barely see him. Mm -hmm. You can only see his destruction. 
And the CGI works really well here because you have the smoke and it's covering up some of the CGI. <laughs> my, final, my final takeaway from that scene was Thranduil and the elves are cowards and dicks. Yeah, they, they, they ride all the way there just to turn around. I can see if that's how the theatrical version played it, I can see that. But no, like that yeah. key scene, you can sort of get like, wow, you let one petty thing like the whole like that. You let those jewels like mm -hmm. uh, Thrain love that Arkenstone. Well, clearly <laughs> Thrain will really like that necklace. <laughs> and it's just like, wow. So it's not just the Arkenstone that's corrupting. Yeah. Thrain wheels turned into a bit of an ass because he could he could have said and. There's literally, a, I'm, and I bet this is in the theatrical, like, Thorin is screaming for help. Help us. Come help us. And they just stand on the rock, look at them, and turn, and turn around. And I'm like, you know what? That's like giving a big F you to the dwarves. Like, we're going to show up and then just turn our backs. The other thing that this does is it also sets up the animosity between Gimli and Legolas. Yes. Yeah. Does that really fellowship. well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now we're going to return to Hobbiton. Peaceful place. At this point, Bilbo, having filled in the history leading up to his own appearance in the narrative, decides to tell his nephew Frodo the whole story of his adventure 60 years earlier. And we finally get the title card and Unexpected Journey. Uh, finally. We've been talking for a while, but I think it's only been like three minutes of the movie. No, it's been about 12. Has it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so in Hobbiton, I, I was going to say, I've seen this movie a lot. We <laughs> meet Frodo, who lives with his uncle Bilbo. And if you watch this in order... This is your first scene of Bilbo, or Frodo, yep. I mean. Uh, Bilbo seems surprised at his birthday. He goes, it's my birthday. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. yeah you're and right, then yeah. Frodo goes, well, yeah, we sent the invites out. And I think so, that's supposed to make him seem like old and senile. Well, so he invited people over, but then he starts hiding all his stuff. Like, okay, so hold on. You, you want to invite people over, but you don't like having guests? No, he doesn't like specific guests. But then why did he invite them? He didn't. But as you said, we invited these people. <laughs> well, okay. My only argument for that is in like the societal di dictates. Have you ever had that family member where you really don't like that family member, but anytime <laughs> it's a family gathering, like you have to invite right. them because it's a reunion or whatever? I feel like it's like that. Like, for the sake of my family members, listen to this. Uh, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> he, well, he, not you guys. He, he, he literally <laughs> says, to, like, it's Lobelia Sackville Baggins, like, always tries to steal the silver. So. Yeah. And in the books, that is a thing in Lord of the Rings where the Sackville Bagginses want Bag End. They mm -hmm. want Bilbo and Frodo out. Yeah. And so. Uh, which I believe at the end of the Hobbit trilogy, he they, comes back and they're selling off all his stuff. But yeah. we'll get to that later on. Which, that is one of my favorite scenes, though. That, <laughs> I, I, this, I don't think that scene was in the book, but I think that was a scene. But see, and this is where I think Peter Jackson is kind of funny because he realizes he did something and so he tries to fix it. What that scene was at the end of the Hobbit trilogy should have been at the end of the Lord of the Rings, Rings. trilogy. And so we, it's still in there, just not chronologically. So we go 60 years back. We do it. Uh, Flashback. The puff of smoke goes in the air. It comes back. And now. Smoke ring. Smoke ring. Yes. Uh, we go back in time to a much younger Bilbo who sits smoking outside his front door when along comes a tallish fellow, not a hobbit, in a pointed hat and gray cloak. He is the wizard, Gandalf the Grey, and he's looking to enlist the last member of an expedition that's ready to head off on a quest. Good morning. <laughs> is, is, are you wishing me a good morning, or is it simply a good morning, or is it simply a morning that you wish to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose. <laughs> Bilbo wants no part of this adventure, but Gandalf has other ideas and places a glowing rune on his door before he leaves. Uh, the, I love the transition from old to young Bilbo. Because you don't get a like you know a morphing scene of his face no, when he's it's younger. Just up and down. Yeah, 
and immediately this scene, I fall in love with Martin Freeman. Yeah. He's so good. He's the best character for this role. And this is the other thing that they would talk about on the D- on the Blu-rays about why they loved him. Martin never did the same take twice. Really? He, he would do something different in every take. It's interesting you said, like, they on the appendices, they say he he acts without speaking because what he does with the mail when he's flipping through and what yeah. he does with his pipe and just his eyes and, like you said, the blocking where he turns his shoulders <laughs> away and just walks off quickly. <laughs> Everything he does paints such a better picture of who he is outside of just his words. One one of the phrases they used is he is one of the best nonverbal actors mm-hmm. of his generation, if ever. He's really, really good. Yeah. The... Uh, And we get our first real question that needs answering later on. Why does Gandalf choose Bilbo? Because you see Bilbo and you go, clearly he ain't leaving. Why would Gandalf choose this guy? Yeah. But it's something that has to be answered later on when you pose a question like this. As Bilbo sits down to eat the next evening, he's interrupted by a visitor, an imposing dwarf called Dwalin, who acts as though he's expected. He wolfs down Bilbo's supper before more dwarves arrive. Balin, Biffer, Boffer, Bomber, Feely, Keely, Oing, Loin, Nori, Dori, and Ori. As well as Gandalf, and eventually Thorin Oakenshield. So important, he has a last name. Yeah. Bilbo's finicky neatness is disrupted as they carry all the food out of the pantry, rearrange the furniture, and sing a silly song to tease the poor hobbit. Chip the glasses and crack the plates. That's what Bilbo Baggins ate. There you go. Sorry to interrupt. What should I do with with my my plate? plate. Before settling down the business, they came to discuss their quest. I love this scene. I absolutely love this scene. Mm-hmm. And when you when they first open the door and you see Dwalin, you're just like, <gasps> like if you want my honest opinion, that's like Dwalin as a dwarf isn't what you picture when you like you picture Gimli. You picture like that when you think dwarf. And so when Dwalin with the shaved or with the bald head and the axes, you're like. <gasps> Hell's Angel Dwarf. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I think the intro to these dwarves is great. It was it, 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 it did their, very well in the theater too. People were laughing when you see them all domino in. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the cleaning up scene. This scene is really straightforward to children. They're the ones who are going to enjoy this juggling and all this and all this fun stuff first. Yeah. So I, I was all in right until that, and then I said, "Shoot, this is not going to be Lord of the Rings." No! What was it about the the the? It was goofy, and it was it was way too. Oh, it was too campy for your it, taste. Not, it was just there. It, you have a bunch of dwarves who clearly they, they don't have manners. They're a little bumbly, but they can immaculately clean a place all of a sudden. That that stuff is the stuff that children can buy into right away. Uh, the dwarves plan to return to Erebor and reclaim their kingdom and their treasure from the dragon. A 13-member expedition invites bad luck, so they wish to hire a 14th member, a burglar. And Gandalf assures them that Bilbo is a first-rate burglar, or will be one when the time comes. (laughs) Uh, Martin Freeman is clearly the perfect person for this role. Yes. Everything he says is spot on. Top-rate one, I imagine. (laughs) Are you? Emma, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) They had to get a a, a comedic actor for this. They did. And they got an actor-comedian. You know, it... Everything he does is great. He plays aloof so well. Uh, but it, it's but not it's too smart Brit- aloof. It's not too British either. Gandalf also says that Bilbo present a slight advantage to the company when infiltrating Smog's lair. Smog is not familiar with the scent of a hobbit, and Bilbo will be less detectable to the dragon. Their contract offers Bilbo a 1 14th share of any profits. 
Thorin still seems distrustful of this decision, and Bilbo's lack of experience and re reiterates this to Gandalf, claiming no responsibility for Bilbo's fate. Ooh, what do you think of Thorin at this point? I thought it was a hole. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But then he also, but then because I'd read the book, I'm like, Thorn needs to be an asshole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thorn is very condescending, and but he's imposing also. Like every scene he's in, he's looking down, and there's like a shadow across his face almost. That's true. So you, I don't know. I kind of thought they were trying to push him to be kind of like, a, you don't know who this character is going to be. I think they tried to make it, you don't know if he's good or bad. Okay. Yeah. And I think they wanted that crystal clear because. I don't think he th knows if he's good or bad. Is he going to succumb to the sickness like his family? Yeah. Is he going to be a good leader? Is he going to... Yeah. Like, they needed him to be ambiguous, and Richard Armitage did that very well. Uh, I think the other thing was the burping, the bodily functions, and all that stuff. <laughs> and that's for kids. Yeah, yeah. It is. And who was it? Was that Gloin? Ori? Who did, the, who did the big Bomber? burp? Oh, oh, no. Ori did Ori. the big burp. Okay. Or he did the big bar. Bombor did the so. Bomber is the fat one, right? Bomber is the like, fat throw one. Throw the tree, yeah. tree into his mouth, and everyone just goes up in arms and starts celebrating. So they did that. <laughs> they got it on the first take again. No way. They couldn't do it after. <laughs> they said like, they, "I ate thirteen eggs." <laughs> <laughs> he had a rough evening. Awesome. Bilbo faints. <laughs> that, I love this. I'm like up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot for the man to take it's, in. <laughs> it's such good acting, um, and he hits it so. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> when he awakens, he's told by Gandalf that there is a chance he won't return. Can you promise I will come back? No, and if you do, you will never be the same. Yeah, and that's when he's like, "I'm sorry, you've got the wrong Hobbit." Um, the dwarves sing a song that discusses what happened to their people and how they lost the mountain. It's a short song. It is. It's literally less than a minute. Mm -hmm. It feels like five. I, I thought the song was redundant because we just got the prologue. This is explaining it again. I saw you write that, and I actually have a rebuttal, but I didn't well, know. What is it? So we, as the audience, have seen what's happened. Bilbo hasn't. I honestly think they sing that song after he says he won't go. He's sitting there listening to the song. Mm -hmm. He hears their voices. He hears them sing about this and they're longing for their home. I believe in my interpretation of watching it that it is the song that made Bilbo change his mind. Okay. I think it could also be part of the him wanting to go out on an adventure. But the way he is looking, the way he is sitting there listening to that song, it is short. It doesn't go into whole detail, but it's quick enough to get like, this is why they're going. I think all of that was for Bilbo. Okay. And then Bilbo hears it, and Bilbo changes his mind and goes on the quest. That's just That's my idea. interesting point. So here's a question. Could they have gotten rid of the prologue and had explained in the song so that we're on the journey with Bilbo? Because the prologue explains all that, and now we're just waiting for Bilbo to catch up in his knowledge as an audience. I don't think they could have covered the detail in the song because or, is, that's one of the songs that Tolkien wrote, right? Yeah, or or because, take the prologue and move it to when Balin, I believe, is telling him about why Thorin is the way that he is. Because you take that scene, but then you then, don't. But then you don't understand that because that scene he's setting up who Thorin is at the Battle of Fomoria. Well, why are they having that battle? Because of what happened before. No, I think they needed to pace it the way they did. You you have the prologue, so you know what happens to them. 
Then you have this company that comes and meets, and yes, Bilbo is catching up, so I can get where that's annoying from us, but but so we play catch up with Bilbo for a minute or so with the song. Bilbo's caught up, and then you have the scene later because Bilbo is now saying or finding out about orcs and all of this stuff. Feely and Keely make the joke, and Balin is like, no. This is what orcs do, and it's another. If I think if you put them all together, then it would be too. I almost think it would be worse if you'd have done them all together. And I think breaking them up the way they did is good pacing and good storytelling. Okay, in my opinion. Okay, it's been thirty-seven minutes, and we haven't left the house. That's a pacing issue. It takes thirty-seven minutes to start this movie. Yeah. So we get to the next morning. Bilbo wakes up in the morning. The dwarves have all gone, and deep down, he is disappointed. He's lost the opportunity of finding an adventure. But he discovers that Thorin has signed the contract. All of a sudden, Bilbo decides to join the group. He catches up with them on the road and is given a pony to ride. Give them a pony. (laughs) No, no, I'm sure I could keep up. (laughs) (laughs) His adventure has begun, although he's still set in his comfortable ways and complains about the pony rub causing him a skin sore and even tries to return to his hobbit hole. For his handkerchief. (laughs) You'll have to do with much more than handkerchiefs before this is over. And I love the fact that dwarves bet on whether Bilbo oh, yeah. would return yeah. to the company of Oakenshield. Pay I, up, Nori. Pay up. I didn't like the fact that Gandalf did. I thought Gandalf would be above it. Oh, <laughs> like, was, wizards was, don't bet on things we know. You know? I would expect a Gandalf moment like that. Oh, no. <laughs> but when he catches the coin purse, I was like, oh, you too. <laughs> I like that. I, thought I that do. Fun. I do love Gandalf in this movie because his interactions with Martin Freeman are amazing. Yeah, everything that they do together is great, and it even adds to the original trilogy when you have him and Bilbo, and then his care for Frodo. Yeah, because you can say you it can makes tell so that, much more sense. Right. It's you know he was much more of a mentor to Frodo. But it's almost much more of a friendship. He was, with, yeah. Uh, him and Bilbo were best friends. Yeah, he's clearly a high maintenance hobbit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, guys, stop, stop! I need to go back. I need my hand. Everyone in the audience went, "No, just start the movie." <laughs> 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 but what's he throw at him? Does he rip off his shirt? Yeah, Bo, Bo, Bo for Jimmy Nesbitt's character tears <laughs> off a piece of his. Here, use this. And let me just say, Jimmy Nesbitt is my favorite hobbit, Beaufort. Uh, after a day of traveling, the company makes camp. Feely and Keely try to scare Bilbo with tales of night raids from orcs, but Thorin takes exception to this. Balin tells Bilbo the story of what happened after Smog had taken the mountain. According to Balin, the dwarves attempt to reconquer Moria, a dwarven kingdom in the Misty Mountains that's been overrun by evil creatures called orcs. Led by a huge pale orc called Azog the Defiler, the Az- orc... Azog? Azog. Okay, Azog the Defiler... <laughs> This will be one where I'm going to be constantly <laughs> <laughs> under fire for pronunciation. Uh, the orc armies repel the dwarves. In the battle, Azog beheads Thror. I guess I'm having trouble because it wasn't in the book. And, and, <laughs> no, he's, he beheads Thror. Oh, it is Thror. I'm yeah. sorry. It is Thor. An enraged Thorin attacks Azog. Losing his shield early in the duel, Thorin uses an oak log to defend himself, earning the name Oaken Shield. He disables Azog by severing his arm, leaving him to be pulled away, kicking and screaming by some retreating orc soldiers. Thorin's father, Thrain, is grief-stricken by the loss of his own father, Thror, and goes missing, never to be seen again. Spurred on by the defeat of Azog, the dwarves manage to reclaim their land, albeit at the cost of the majority of their numbers. Thorin is left in charge of what remains of his grandfather's empire, but his people are too few to defend Moria or retake Erebor. With nowhere to go, the dwarves scatter to make their way in the world as miners, smiths, and toy makers. Yep. This is a great way to introduce Azog the Defiler. Yeah. 
I w- just wish it was in the prologue. Like I said earlier, <coughs> yeah. I, it's, I, I, I wish that they were both one piece. Yeah. And I'm not going to belabor that point. What do you think of Azog? I loved him. I loved Azog. It, it was one he was of, fully CGI, wasn't he? Well, he was a mix, and then because he, became, he wasn't he wasn't motion capture. He he became fully CGI. That like in the making of, they tried a couple different techniques, and that's the other thing is clearly you see Peter Jackson is kind of discovering some techniques as he goes, mm-hmm. and eventually he became full CGI. Yes, yeah. When it's pulled away from him, it's not close up. I buy it. He looks realistic when it's too close. When it's too the, close. But yeah. here's the thing. The first scene that they did was the Gollum scene. And Gollum looks the best of anything in this film. Yeah. I agree. You can tell they spent all the time on that guy. Yep. And they had to. Mm-hmm. Riddles in the Dark is the centerpiece of this, this film. This yep. film. If not one of the centerpieces of the book. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So we get to the company of Oak and Shield, continuing the next day, traveling east. We learn of Saruman the White and Radagast the Brown. Radagast clearly is looked down upon by the other wizards. <laughs> well, Gandalf likes him. He likes him, but he kind of looks down his nose at him, too. We cut to a scene of Radagast the Brown, who is panicking. He tries to resuscitate an injured hedgehog. Outside his home, the shadows of spiders (laughs) (laughs) appear on the the outside of Radagast's home. Radagast realizes that witchcraft is the reason. He succeeds in helping the hedgehog using magic, which also wards off the spiders. First of all, Radagast is crazy. (laughs) <laughs> but he's good crazy he, no his ideals are in a different place <laughs> it I ain't like showering it. <laughs> <laughs> he's a nature lover he's got bird shit in his hair hey he's okay with it the birds are happy he's cross-eyed <laughs> well they, that's not his fault <laughs> <laughs> I also wrote down spiders boo because <laughs> uh, they're not just spiders. They're big spiders. And it's, apparently they're not from there. He's like, where'd these come from? Its legs are strong enough to crack through a tree, right, Joe? <laughs> yeah, I'm not Let feeling that at all. Wall. Thanks for that, Joel. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I literally had a, a JC moment on my couch where I just kind of changed my position all of a sudden. <laughs> you need to stop that. <laughs> I, was watching it, um, I was watching it yesterday. Someone they said, are there about to be spiders like... I can't remember if they show him in this one. She was like, nah, just let me know when it's done. It's the second one. It's the second one. Gandalf runs off after a spat with Thorin at a farmhouse over which direction to go. Thorin also bristles at the idea of bringing the elves into the fold. Now, Thorin is clearly unhappy with the path that Gandalf wants to take. Gandalf runs off. This is the first time Gandalf left them. Leaves them, right? Yep. Do we know where he's going? Nope. And we don't in the book either. He just goes away. Yeah, in the book, he also just leaves. Okay. A wizard is never late. <laughs> I knew that was going to be said at some point. <laughs> Why does the rest of it go? He arrives we precisely, arrive when, he precisely when we meet. <laughs> we don't hear that line for three more movies. Okay? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, one or e- have we heard it already? We haven't if we have to watch this first. No, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. One evening, while puzzling over the disappearance of some of their ponies... Bilbo, Feely, and Keely, the two youngest dwarves, see firelight in the distance. They creep closer and discover three large trolls. Bilbo, as the burglar, is pushed forward to rescue four ponies being kept in a corral. He sneaks in but is captured. The dwarves attack the trolls but are forced to surrender when the trolls threaten to rip Bilbo apart. Half the company are tied to a large rotating spit over the trolls' fire. The other half are trapped in large sacks. Bilbo stalls for time by telling the trolls the dwarves are infected. Suddenly, Gandalf appears, splits a boulder with his staff, and sunlight pours through the crack, turning the trolls to stone. Now, 
this isn't the first, but this is the ones where I'll talk about a lot of purists are like, but Bilbo didn't save him. Gandalf did. Because in the book, Gandalf is the one that stalls for time. Gandalf is the one that sort of says all these things. I'm completely fine with it now being Bilbo. Um, mm. I, I think I think how they paste it works. I think so. I have to agree with that because they give Bilbo purpose then. Yep. But that would also mean that Bilbo knew Gandalf would return or that the sun would just... Although they, they No, he does I mean, all Bilbo or all Gandalf did cracking the boulder was make them see the sun quicker. Right. That sun was eventually going to be over the boulder. That's all Bilbo was trying to do was just stall until that sun got over the boulder. Because he does hear before then that they we have to do this before sunup. Yeah. Right? First of all, the beasts are not scary. These trolls are not scary at all. They're the three stooges. I love it. I don't think they're supposed to be scary. Well... I remember them being just as campy in the book, right? Yeah, I know they we're, were not talking about the book. They but. were, they were, they were campy in the book. But again, there, there is an impending doom when you see these trolls, and then when they start talking, you're going to hate this. And I'm sorry, they seem like three Jar Jar Binkses. Oh, One of my I, favorite characters. I was going to say, I don't hate Jar Jar Binks. The orcs spoke their own language. Why not the trolls? I don't know because the 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 dwarves only speak their own language when it's just them. But the trolls were by themselves. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I'm going to introduce a term here that'll be used a couple more times, and that is Gandalf Ex Machina. Uh-huh. It's a takeoff of Deus Ex Machina, Hand of God. Uh, Deus Ex Machina is, and I wrote the definition down here, an unexpected power or event saving a seemingly hopeless situation, especially as a contrived plot device in a play or novel. Gandalf shows up in the nick of time. Okay. Saves the group. Yep. He does this two more times in this movie. Yep. So he does it in the book too. Uh, and doing it repeatedly is not, it's not an excuse. Unless he means for it to happen that way. No. Wizards know everything. Oh, don't give me the wizard line. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, as soon as you said that, I was like, he's going to throw that at me again. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> uh, realizing that the, troll, that the trolls would have a cave to retreat to in the daytime, they search around and find the hidden lair. Gandalf and the dwarves find some good, indeed magical, elven swords, along with a small treasure trove. Gandalf gives the smallest of the swords, later called Sting, to Bilbo, saying it will glow blue when there are orcs and goblins around. The other swords are the famed Glamdring, which Gandalf takes for himself, and its mate, Orcrist, which Gandalf suggests Thorin keep. Thorin is reluctant to use an elven sword, but Gandalf persuades him, saying such a fine weapon is a rare find. Yeah. Uh, I love how he's just like full on with the elves. He's like, no, you don't get it. They know what they're doing. Do they even know where the cave goes? No. They only go to the treasure and then that's it. Why detour here? They know trolls keep treasure. And what do dwarves love? Treasure. treasure. And food. And food. Treasure and food. Yeah. Okay. And, and so they go there and then maybe this is... That's not explained in the theatrical. In the theatrical version, is there a scene where all of the dwarves are burying the gold in the trolls? Yes, that's there. But not all of them. Three of them are. The rest are walking around just pilfering. Well, like taking yeah. swords and stuff. Well, yeah, that's, that's... But that's the thing. That's not explained in the theatrical. It's not explained that they went there to go find treasure. They, the way it's explained is they went there because the trolls came from there. So here is, here is the problem we're going to have throughout all of these movies is you will point out what's not explained through the films, but I will say, but I know that, but the reason I know that is because <laughs> I spent so much time watching the appendices. You have a I, house in Middle Earth. <laughs> that I know exactly why they did everything, and that's going to end up being a problem because I'm going to be like, but I know that the dwarves love it, but the reason I know that is because of how much I've watched behind the scenes. If you could have a condo in Middle Earth, would you? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> 
there's lots of swords on the ground. Why does Gandalf pick the one that's under all the leaves? No, he kicks it with his foot. Oh, okay. He tripped over it? I, I was going to say, he kicks it with his foot, and he sees it, and that's when he picks it up. Now, that is different from the book. In the book, Bilbo finds it. Yeah. Bilbo is rooting through everything. I think. I don't know. I'm not talking about the book. <laughs> yes. But you talk about it. Apparently, please. I am. Uh, but yeah, Bilbo is, an, is the one that actually finds Sting. I kind of like that they did this little change, because it also gives the line that you need. True court courage is about not knowing when to take a life, yep. but knowing when to spare one. Yep. Foreshadowing. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> later, one of the dwarves reports the ponies have all run off. <laughs> so nobody's watching the horses again. <laughs> Come on. Well, they are dwarves. They're like, they're like singularly focused. <laughs> Food, gold. Food, gold. Mm. Fighting. Food. <laughs> Radagast the Brown, the wizard who watches over the region, arrives in his rabbit-drawn sleigh. He tells Gandalf there is evil in the forest and in the, in the old abandoned fortress of Dolgodur. He recounts a fight with a spirit, the Witch King of Angmar. He claims that the necromancer has returned. Radagast takes a puff from his pipe and gives Gandalf a sword that was not created by the living. That's a lot of information. It is. <laughs> As someone who has delved so much into it, this, Go is, there. My, this is my first gripe. I want more information. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, seriously? Like, this is one of those, this is, I'm like, tell us the prologue on Dol Guldor. Like, what the hell happened? Like, no one gets it through a four-hour movie in the theater. <laughs> I know, I know. But, that, but like, that is one where, like, I actually had to go and do research. Okay. Because they don't go back to it. And, like, there is a whole other story for what happens at Dol Guldor and the rise of the Witch King of Angmar and all of that stuff and them coming out of their prisons and all that stuff. And it's just so glanced over in the movie that the completionist in me is like, there's so much mist right there. But yeah, it would make it a five hour movie. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I can, and for me, I can understand why the scene is in here. Uh, and the gripe that I had when I saw The Hobbit the first time no longer exists. Because when I saw The Hobbit the first time, I saw it as a separate trilogy. Yeah. It was a separate trilogy. It was a separate book. It was never meant to be linked together. And so when you see these tie-ins, it's meant for the audience that has seen The Lord of the Rings first. Because then they go, oh, yeah, The Witch King. I remember that guy. Uh, I want to know more about The Necromancer, though. Who's this Necromancer guy? I yeah. got to know. You're right. I want more information. Give me an information dump already. Exactly. <laughs> Radagast, again, I put down, Radagast is clearly nuts. <laughs> doesn't he at one point pull a stick bug out of his mouth yeah I'm yeah, like it's been in there the whole uh, that, that is what I'm like why did it's right on the tip of my tongue yeah I know it's not it's a stick I'm like that was what I'm like okay that was not needed that and then here that take was... a puff of my smoke I'm like what are you doing to this guy no that that actually I like because he will be accused both of Lord of the Rings later and by Sauron I think at the White Council but maybe I'm actually remembering the, the council at Ornthank in, in Fellowship of the Rings. But he is angry at Gandalf the Grey for smoking old Toby. He believes, Sauron believes that old Toby has dulled his senses. So him showing that smoking old Toby to Radagast is calming Radagast is further proving maybe your senses have dulled and maybe all of this that you're making up is because of you smoking the halfling's leaf and all that. And that goes back to Sauron okay. later on. The orcs arrive, and Radagast, saying he will lead them away, takes off with his rabbit sleigh. Stop it. <laughs> Stop. I love the rabbit sleigh. Oh, God, tapping his foot. <laughs> and they say in the making of, yeah, we took that straight from Thumper. We, 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 stole, we stole that from Bambi. Don't tell Disney. 
<laughs> like, like we're not even sure if rabbits do that, but it was in Bambi. <laughs> the traveling party makes its way across a hilly open area while the orcs chase the brown wizard. However, one orc tracks them down and the fight draws the others. Gandalf leads them into a deep crevice in the rocks before the orcs are driven off by elvish horsemen. This is a scene that looks amazing that I wish had been planned out better because they don't have horses. They're on foot. Mm -hmm. The wargs at times appear to be right on their heels and then, and then they're not that that is some, some, that's an editing thing. I I completely agree. Uh, And it's a thing. It's a long scene and you expect the suspension uh, the, 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 the suspense, if you will, and then you realize, oh, they're miles away, or they're like a hundred yeah, yards away. Yeah, he clearly chose shots that he liked, but yeah. then when you watch, and again, I chalked this up too. He was editing a day before it was due, mm-hmm. so he didn't give himself enough time. So I think had he had longer, he would have caught it. But I, it's a problem. I wish the Radagast rabbits were were larger. It would make it more believable that they could outrun wargs. The rabbits, yeah. But these are Ruskabel rabbits. <laughs> I'd love to see them try. <laughs> and the pushing of his look. And you're like, you are driving. <laughs> I wouldn't let you drive to a CVS. <laughs> uh, I pick up my pills. I, and, uh, I really didn't like the CGI in this scene. I really did. And that's, that's a personal preference, I think, perhaps. But there are times when it just did not look as good as LOTR had done it. When we talk about the making of this movie and how he was building off of somebody else's vision to start with. Yep. And then he's, he's only given an additional five months. You can tell they were like, well, we can do this practically. We don't have time. Let's do CGI. Yep. And I think if he had more time, some of this would have been practical effects. Yeah. So uh, there's, and there's, uh, let's see, what, why the heck does one dwarf have a slingshot? Because they didn't <laughs> want to make Ori too, like they had the Dwalins with the two axes and the and the bald head. They had the Balins who were stature. Ori was the youngest dwarf. He's like the kid, mm-hmm. and so like he's still figuring out how to fight. So because <laughs> he hits the rock in the head of the board, and and here, I'm like, here's the other. What's that gonna do? Here's the other funny <laughs> thing. Adam Brown, who plays Ori, asked for it. Like all of all of the weapons that they have, the actors got the weapons they asked for. Dwalin has two axes on his back because that's what Graham McTavish wanted. Uh-huh. Ken Stott wanted a sword that also worked like an axe. That's why he has the funky looking sword that he does. Adam Brown, who played Ori, wanted a slingshot, and so they made him a slingshot. He's equipped like Bart Simpson. Yep. <laughs> Do you think they have any chips? <laughs> Oh, we're I almost there. Don't I, worry. I don't like green food. <laughs> <laughs> Can Gandalf create caves whenever he wants? No, I think he knew it was there the whole time. Okay. Because I put, or did Gandalf know that cave was there and would leave to Rivendell next? I think he knew it. I think okay. He, he does spend a lot of time like roaming on his own. I'm sure he knows the countryside pretty well because he just disappears. Okay. How much do you think of Gandalf's free so, time? Do you think he just walks around hills and villages? Oh, yeah. He's, he's, I mean, he is a guardian of Middle Earth. So my guess is he spends most of his time just walking Middle Earth to learn what's there. So was his intention all along to go to this cave? Yes. His intention the whole time is to get them to Rivendell. It's Thorin that doesn't want to go to Rivendell. And so he's using this back entrance as they talk about it because then he'll get them there without Thorin knowing where they're going. So is Rivendell underground? I think it's... Because if the cave, I guess you have to go under to yeah, then. Repeat. If you look around, there is no Rivendell around that area anywhere. But on they, the, on but the they do make as as they're walking through that sort of underground passage. He he does say to Bilbo, "Do you feel it?" It's like yes, it's like magic. He's like yes, a very powerful, a very old magic. So it may be that you have this Rivendell, and 
to everybody to everybody else it looks like all of this because there's this powerful old magic that hides it from the view of everybody else. Okay. Uh, I mean, you don't see Hogwarts because of a magical charm. That's fair. Deus Ex Gandalf. <laughs> there it is. No, that would be Deus Ex Elves. Gandalf didn't come up with the magic. Elves. No, he creates the cave, though. Because no, the cave was not there. Or the cave always existed. Well, my thought and was he that knows he creates the cave, and the cave is a magical transport to Rivendell. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's what I always saw it as. Oh. Because they're at a hopeless moment... And then he goes, come quickly. And he opens up the ground. But, the, uh, and the magic takes him to Rivendell. But the, no, see, that doesn't work because he couldn't have created it because Elrond later on says, oh, you came in the back way. So Elrond makes it seem like it was, it was an entrance that always existed. Okay. That, actually, that would have worked more. The magic thing? That, yeah, if he would have just created it, then you don't have to worry. But I think it was an entrance that always existed, but you, you would... My guess is you would probably continue to walk down and then maybe eventually end up back up on the plains yeah. if you weren't supposed to go to Rivendell because of the magical barrier. But if you were supposed to get to Rivendell, then you would see the path there. I don't know. I'm just gonna, I don't know how magic works, man. I'm going to throw an NBA reference here. Gandalf is the Kevin Durant of this team. He is carrying in there. If he's not on this mission, they're dead. <laughs> well, he's the one that put it all together, right? Well, uh, him and Thorin. Because I guess in the second movie, isn't there a, uh, a prologue where Thorin and Gandalf meet at the Prancing Pony? Yeah, that's at the beginning of the second film. Okay. Um, okay, traveling through the cave, the party comes out near Rivendell, home of Elrond, and we get beautiful elvish music. I don't like him very much. I mean, but that one there, that, that one's not bad. That's, that's not, not in the theatrical. That's not an elf made. <laughs> yeah, that's left out. Oh, that's such a good Which scene. Which leads to why Keeley's all about Evangeline Lilly in the second yes. movie. Oh, yeah. So you don't have that in this movie, so that scene in the second movie feels out of place, but we'll get to the second movie in the second movie. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's such a good scene. Thorin, who still wants nothing to do with elves, angrily declares this was Gandalf's plan all along. Elrond appears with his riders and greets Gandalf and the dwarves warmly. Gandalf convinces Thorin to show Elrond the map. Elrond notices secret writing on the map that has to be read on the same calendar day during the same phase of the moon as when it was written, which luckily is that night. Blue letters glow on the map under the moonlight. Elrond translates the instructions on how to find the entrance to the Lonely Mountain. The dwarves must be in a certain spot on the mountainside on a certain day in late summer, and the setting sun will show the door. There's a lot of coincidence that needs to happen here. I mean, the biggest coincidence is how did they get to El or to Rivendell on the exact night? Yeah, yeah. Now there doesn't seem to be any animosity from Elrond towards the dwarves here. Like the elves don't he's, seem to have an issue. He's well, no, I think they do. They're just polite about Maybe it. Maybe Elrond doesn't, but the rest of them do. Oh no, I think Elrond. Well, you're right. Hugo Weaving did play that he doesn't have an issue with dwarves, but he understands the animosity between the dwarves. Okay. Clearly, Elrond is a different type of elvish king versus Thrandwil, who is another different type of <laughs> elvish king. Yeah. We'll talk about Lee Pace and how good he did on that role. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there is some issues between that. I think it's just you. It's like society. You get the ones that say, yeah, I don't give an F about how you <laughs> think I should act. I'm going to act the way I want. And you can look down your nose at me. And then there's others that are like... It's like the elves are the people from the south. Like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be polite to your face, but really we're stabbing you in the back when you don't know it. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, as a person from the south, I'm gonna <laughs> heavily disagree with that. No, it's they're polite, even though they don't want to be. There's no backstabbing. Everyone's a. The, the Rivendell is really pretty. Uh, it's definitely it is the place in Middle Earth I would most want a vacation. 
Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to see an elf maiden? I, well, I was just thinking that's how beautiful it is in general. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, everyone seems to treat dwarves like they're less than, even though they were once the rulers of the land. Yep. Well, they lost their land. Well, yeah, but you don't just like go, okay, now you're dirt. But that, but that's the animosity between the elves and them is they do, they are kind of treated like dirt, which is why the dwarves further don't like them. Uh, I put down coincidences about with the reading of the map 200 years ago to the date and the time at night. Deus Ex Gandalf. And then exactly the right spot, exactly the right time. Is there any doubt they'll get there? They've got Deus Ex Gandalf on their side. That's the thing. The coincidences start to pile up that you don't feel like there's anything that but they Gandalf can't do. isn't there when they find the doorway. Um, no, he's not. Sorry. But we don't know that, that yet, do we? second movie, I'm sorry. We don't know that yet. I apologize. Um, <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers. But there's a pattern going on here. There is. Okay. Elsewhere, the orcs have made camp with Azog. I said it right this time. Good job. Standing watch. The orcs explain their failure to capture the dwarves of, to Azog, and Azog kills the captain of the party by feeding him to his wolves. Azog sends all of his minions that the, to the, uh, that the dwarves are to be killed immediately. Is this just meant to show Azog is a bad man so you don't forget about him? Yeah, probably. Okay. okay. So it's a, it's a character establishment yeah. part. Yep. Okay. I, I get it then. Later, <laughs> later, Gandalf and Elrond meet with Saruman the White and Galadriel. They discuss the mysterious necromancer and some looming portents of evil. Saruman seems indifferent, saying that the evil spirit, Sauron, was vanquished centuries before and couldn't possibly gain enough power to return, much less materialize again. Gandalf produces the object wrapped in cloth that he received from Radagast, an evil sword or Morgul blade. That was supposed to have been buried deep in a mountain. Galadriel silently promises aid to Gandalf when needed. Meanwhile, the dwarves and Bilbo continue their journey. This is another instance where you guys are missing an important scene uh, in the theatrical edition. There, I can't remember if it is during the scene or directly after it. But essentially, when they discover that this blade came from the Witch King, Galadriel says this phrase of, he was buried deep where there is no light, and that is protected by a magical barrier. And Elrond is like, nobody should be able to get out of there. They send Gandalf back, and you see Gandalf go and look at those tombs, and you see them wrenched open like somebody with giant fists just pulled the mountain apart. Yeah. And all of the graves are torn open. And that is when you realize that someone brought the Nazgul to life. Somebody raised those nine kings and brought them back to life. And that's when they realize, or at least when Gandalf finally makes a decision, Sauron is back. So, so that's, that's pretty important, and it's missed. To tie this to the Lord of the Rings, this scene is absolutely, probably of all of them, the most necessary. Yes, at the time you see this and you think of it just as its own trilogy, you feel unnecessary because you're like, is this just a wink to the audience? But now that you see it as a whole group, it is. It's a it's scene that I wish was in there. important. Yeah. Uh, thus, but here's the thing. It makes the movie longer. Longer then. And that's the hard part about I this know. is that, you know, uh, I put down Saruman is clearly Gandalf's boss. Yep. Uh, there's a hierarchy in wisdom. Wizardom. Radagast uses mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sauron is mentioned. We don't know who he is yet, though. No, we don't. Uh, but he's also mentioned separately than the necromancer. They they are talked about in the theatrical as two separate beings. But yeah, uh, we find out later that they're the same. Yep. Uh, just one is the human humanoid version of the Eye of Sauron, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, how come Galadriel and Gandalf can think, speak to each other, and Saruman, who is more powerful, has no idea? 
I don't think it's them. I think it's Galadriel. I think Galadriel is more powerful than Sauron. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I think Galadriel is the head of everybody. Oh, I thought Galadriel was like mm. at the top of hers and like the president of the elves <clears throat> and then Saruman was the president of the wizards. <laughs> they were the same level. <laughs> I, and I think it is that, but I think Galadriel was... So you have these gods that created Arda, which Arda is the name for Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. Galadriel is the daughter of one of those gods, I think. I may be wrong, okay. so if there's a Tolkien purist out there and I'm getting it wrong, write me in and tell me I'm an idiot. But I believe she is, if she's not the daughter, she is directly descended to the gods that made the world. Okay. So she is like uber elf. And so I think she is, she's also the only one that can stand up to Sauron, ah. which we see her do in the next episode. I did it again. <laughs> Which we see her do in film two when she's defending Gandalf and all that. She is the only one that is powerful enough as, as a single entity to take on Sauron. And I think that's because of her god blood or whatever. I don't, I don't know the name of it. So she is able to read minds because she chooses to. Okay. And so my guess is she can block Sauron as much as she wants. Uh, Galadriel and Gandalf speaking reminds me of the Jedi saying the dark side has clouded our ability to use the force. It, it does. It's almost lifted word for word. Yeah. You know, the power, the, the darkness has clouded our ability. Yeah. Um, and were Galadriel and Gandalf an item? They love each other. Were they an item, though? Like, no, because she's married to another elf. So why is but, this in here? Because I don't think it's, I don't think it's a love to each other. And I think this is something that Tolkien tries to do, especially with Sam and Frodo later. Everybody wants to take love and make it a sexual thing. Whereas I think Gandalf and Galadriel love each other as friends genuinely love each other. So, yes, I think there is an attachment. I think they genuinely love each other, but Mm -hmm. I do not think it is romantic. I do not think it is sexual. I think it is the same as what Sam and Frodo is. In all honesty, if, if I think... If I think men could look at their lives and find that they had somebody that loved them as much as Sam and Frodo love each other, they'd be the better for it without mm-hmm. having to worry about all the sexual innuendo and all mm-hmm. that. And I think that's what Gandalf loves the most is he has this close relationship with Galadriel and it's not built on sex or any of that. It's just they love each other and Tolkien likes that. I, and I think that what throws people off is when she takes her hand and grazes it on his face. Yeah. That that's an intimate moment right there, and but now that you've explained that she is nearly godlike, I could see it also as this is God's love yeah. upon this person, yeah, and that's what it would feel like. It feels intimate, but it's not. Mm-mm. Yes, um, I would agree with that. Okay, well that explains a lot for me. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for us to see because the darkness clouds our sight. <laughs> I mean, truly. Uh, just spend twelve hours watching the appendices, man. Uh, we cut to climbing a mountain. <laughs> Uh, the party it's is a ca- thunder battle. The pi- party is caught in the midst of a battle as three stone giants come alive and start fighting with each other. Well, they're playing with each other. Uh, Bilbo and the dwarves take refuge in a cave. Thorin berates Bilbo again for having to save his life. Again. Yeah. Uh, big rock monsters. Was this the Guillermo del Toro part? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I honestly don't. Uh, this is a strange part because I'll get to it even in, I think, like what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. When I watch this scene, I this is usually when I'm go get like a refill or go to the bathroom or something like that. It's in the book. You do? I, <laughs> I do too. Like it's this in, scene and the goblin scene, both of them, I'm sort of like, 
I, I go get a sandwich. This is sort of like my break scene. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know why, because it's in the book. I respect, you know, them going true to it, but I I see this as purely, was it maybe the MacGuffin? Is that what y'all call it? No. Nope. Where it's like you... The MacGuffin in this is the map. Okay. The map in the ruins, because that's what's pushing this plot along, is that they've got this map to, to get Erebor. Okay. I'm thinking of it. It's something that you're like, okay, this has to happen so that they go into this cave. Yeah. But it's like the whole thing. I'm like, it looks cool, 3D. It was fun, but it's a total. It means nothing to the story except for it's why they go into the cave and end up going down the goblin hole. And the scene is extended monumentally from the book because the book yeah. it's a paragraph. Yeah, and in the book they make it seem like they're playing a game. This is they're killing each other. Yeah, like a couple of those giants died. Yeah, which I would I, I suppose that if you're made of rock and you're trying to catch other rocks, you're gonna get chipped. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. So, th- so you're saying there's chippiness in their fighting? Hey, look at that! <laughs> I will say the good thing about this scene is that it does start to show uh, care between the dwarves and Bilbo, and once again they're having to save uh, Thorin, and, but Thorin also saves Bilbo, and you're starting to get the picture that everyone is, needs to rely on each other if they want to move and forward. And they need to look out for each other, yeah. yeah. And, oh God, no, I'm sorry. There's no way in hell they would be alive after this. They just can't be. The well, quakes alone would have knocked them off that shelf. Yeah, probably. So yeah. this is one of those moments where kids buy in and go, got it. Yes, that, that would happen. And the idiot adult in me just goes, no, stop. I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> Expectations. I know. <laughs> uh, it, I, I was going to say, I'm not going to disagree with you physically. Yes. But- <laughs> You're right. In terms of physics, there's no way in hell. But then we, well, if we're going to go we, physics. There's another say, problem in the goblin cave later. I was going to say, <laughs> we, we, we're going to see some things later. And there's even some things in Star Wars to really, really sort say, of ah, start Star Wars though, with physics. I was <laughs> say, according to physics, we would have saved a lot of podcast time by yeah. not doing Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. Magic always trumps physics. Yeah. We've learned that in our movies. But there is no magic involved here. We don't know that. We do, because Gandalf's not there. You just said that. I His know, but we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Even though in the book he was. That Galadriel oh, or shoot, somebody. Oh, shoot, I read the books again. Damn it! <laughs> we don't know that Galadriel or somebody else isn't protecting or watching over. Well, they're doing a piss-poor job. They keep finding themselves in danger. Well, you only do so much. It's like that parent. It's like... I'm watching my son do something really stupid, but I'm here. If he does something really stupid, I'll grab him by the cuff of his shirt. But otherwise, I'm going to let him maybe bust his teeth a little bit so he learns you don't run your face into the door. I like to see it as a bucket of water going over your head, that trick. you know, As everything's moving so fast, gravity just pulls him back towards it. I like that. The only thing I put was, where's Gandalf? Shouldn't he have caught up by now? But if he didn't have a horse, I guess not. Nope. Well, they, yeah, they stole the horses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gandalf does show up. Uh, to save them from the Goblin King. Is he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, cut to Azog, who is still tracking the dwarves and knows that they took the mountain path. Yep. Azog's still here. Yep. All right. Uh, that night, discouraged. And by the way, when I do that, I'm not making fun of this. You do need these <laughs> constant reminders that Azog is fi- tra- tracking yeah. them. You need those. Otherwise... You forget he's a part of the story. Or you forget why they're in a hurry. Yeah. That night, discouraged, Bilbo prepares to sneak away. Beaufort tries to convince him to stay, but Bilbo still feels he isn't prepared for the life of adventure the dwarves are accustomed to. That's my favorite dwarf. The one that's trying to convince him to stay, that's Beaufort. That's yeah. my favorite dwarf. The one we were talking about earlier with the hat that goes to the side. Okay. He's a good balance of... Uh, 
Like he's goofy, but he'll also get serious and talk yep. with all the characters. Uh, I do like, I like this scene, but I don't like what Bilbo says when he throws their home back at him. That was a, that didn't feel like a Bilbo moment to me. I think it did because Bilbo was so uncomfortable. I think Bill, it's that moment when everybody has that moment where they say something so fast because they're so angry or they're so emotional that as soon as they said it, they realize I did not mean it, but you meant it. You meant to say what you just said, but as soon as you said it, as soon as you see the reaction, you're like, oh, I didn't mean it. Oh, I so did mean it. And everyone's done that in their life. So I think this is very appropriate because Bilbo is uncomfortable. He is angry. But as soon as he says it and he sees how Jimmy Nesbitt responds and how Beaufort responds, he's like, Oh, but now I, I almost think he needed to do that so that you see him care for the dwarves. It's in that moment when he watches Beaufort's reaction and he's like, oh, oh, you don't. And I think you need that moment for him later to say, I'm going to help you find your home. Okay. You need that recollection of, holy shit, I just insulted you, but what I said was right. But wow, it really sucks that what I said was right and accurate. Okay. Yeah, and I... I like it because of the humanity in it. We've all been in a place where we've been uncomfortable and someone's tried to encourage us through something and we've said, no, you don't know what I'm feeling. Quit trying to pretend like you can encourage me and understand where I'm coming from because you can't. You don't know what I've been through or you're not where I'm from. You don't know what I'm feeling because I want to be home because you don't have a home. Yep. So quit trying to tell me that my feelings aren't valid. And mm-hmm. so I think of that build up over almost getting killed 200 times is just something that finally snaps. Yep. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, Bilbo's sword glows blue. The floor opens up, and the party falls into a crevice and onto a wooden platform where they are surrounded and taken prisoner by goblins. Yeah. Uh, I love the sword glowing. I think it's a great effect. Mm-hmm. They happen to be sleeping on a trap door to a cage. They didn't know that. I said they happen to be. Oh. Yeah. Happy coincidence. When the goblins are practical effects, they look great. When they're CGI, they look obvious. No. Uh, I one of the things that I will say later is one of my biggest pet peeves is the CGI. At times it just looks bad. Yeah, and this is another leap of faith moment. Bilbo bends over in the middle of this scrum and the all the goblins just kind of walk past him. And I think that's supposed to illustrate hobbits are supposed to be small. They're only three feet and goblins are five foot. They're the same height as dwarves and all of this stuff and like let's be honest, in a throng of people could could a little kid could my son, if I'm not looking for him, just kneel down and we forget about him? I don't know. I think it's possible. And maybe, maybe it's a MacGuffin. I, I had know. a doubt at moment there because it's in the middle. And when he fights the goblin, the goblin's the same size as him mm-hmm. that he fights. Which I put down, when did Bilbo become the swordsman? Wouldn't that fall have injured him somehow? Or does nobody get hurt in this film? Oh, that, that fall <laughs> so should have killed him. But I love how the goblin <laughs> fell on the rocks yeah. and was killed. <laughs> and Bilbo fell on a no, bunch no, of no. mushrooms. The goblin was not killed. Gollum Gollum got him. Yeah, Gollum kills him. But what actually, I'm going to not contradict what you said, but the swordsman, like, I don't think he is. Like, if you go back and look at it, he just, like, holds it in front of him. Yeah, he is just... And the thing that I love about this movie that you don't get in... um, There was another film we, like, just reviewed. A lot of stuff, whether it's, like... Alien? No, no, it's all the freaking trailers we've seen over the Atomic Blonde. Oh. <laughs> if you just go watch that preview and you realize that uh, Force doesn't exist, and like <laughs> Newton's Law of Motion is a total yeah. like poop 
basket. I don't know. And dirty diver. I don't know. That's what I pictured. That, like, I'm sorry. That is our new banner on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I want a poop basket. We are getting a basket filled with poop. No, and this is our banner. Because we send these. This because is, that's a T-shirt. We need a phage number one and poop, poop basket. Because you see people get punched and they don't move. Yeah. The thing that I like about this movie is when you see people swing swords, it knocks them backwards. When you see them, like even when Bilbo like strikes back, it doesn't do anything to the other goblin because the goblin doesn't move, and because Bilbo's super weak. Yep. And so I do like that. You can tell that for a hobbit, the sword is heavy, and he's not like stabbing back or anything. He's just his elbows are tight, and he's just moving it back and forth, trying to save his life. And Peter Jackson ripped into them in dwarf boot camp for that. He's like, when they were learning to use their weapons, he's like, it looks fake. He's like a warhammer, and he actually like gets up out of his mm-hmm. chair, and he's like, you have to put some weight to it. And so he had them get sledgehammers. Yeah, no, I've seen and that. And so part. all of the actors had to practice using their weapons with sledgehammers, so they felt the weight of mm-hmm. something. So it's fun. It's interesting that you said that. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the Goblin King? Oh, I love Barry uh, Barry Humphreys. I thought he was hilarious. Um, I thought it was it was brilliant how smart he was. He's sort of this disgusting entity, but he's intelligent. He's really bright. I thought it was funny what you said about the CGI because Peter Jackson had built animatronic goblins. Mm-hmm. He had built heads and everything to shoot all of that practically. The f- actors actually doing it couldn't be in the costumes for more than 10 minutes. Why? Because they get overheated. They had to take everything back off, and it just took too much time. So he actually makes the decision to make them full CGI, and they all become mocap. So all of them start wearing the mocap suits because it was just taking too long to do the practical uh, goblins. So it's interesting. I also felt like the CGI of the goblins was rushed. Well, it was rushed because he changed it at the last moment, but he changed it. Because of the health of his actors, like right. they were overheating in the in the suits. And I just watched the Bilbo fighting the goblin scene. He really is only blocking in that scene. He's not doing any strikes whatsoever. No, he's just so, trying to protect yeah, himself. I must have seen something differently when I saw it that time. Bilbo slips away in the confusion, but has to fight a lone goblin. The two fall further into the abyss, uh, while the goblins take the dwarves uh, to their king, the great goblin, who sends a message to Azog of the dwarves' location. Bilbo awakens to see Gollum attacking and killing his unconscious goblin. Gollum drops a gold ring, and Bilbo puts it in his pocket. A short time later, Gollum discovers the Hobbit. I gotta make sure it's muted, okay? Gollum discovers the Hobbit and alternately threatens and wheedles at Bilbo as as Bilbo points his sword at him. They agree on a contest of riddles. If Bilbo wins, Gollum will show him the way out. If Bilbo loses, Gollum will eat him. Bilbo and Gollum trade wits, and Bilbo has the final riddle. He asks Gollum what he has in his pocket. It's Gollum's ring. Gollum is enraged. This isn't a standard riddle and refuses to uphold the deal. Can we spend like an hour talking about this scene and how great it is? <laughs> it is. It is Wonderful. great. I mean, if you haven't seen Riddles in the Dark, just it's on YouTube. You can literally just watch that scene. Just go watch Riddles in the Dark. Years of working it's on Gollum. So that clearly brilliant. paid off. It's yeah, so seriously. brilliant. Gollum is crazier than Radagast. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. He's just let the ring eat away at his mind and soul for the for last 60 years. Yeah. No, hundreds of years. Well, no. Because it was in it was in the Anduin for a while, so I think Gollum's only had the ring for maybe sixty years. I think so. Only sixty. Only sixty. <laughs> <laughs> now to sneak up on Bilbo, he would have used his ring, right? Yeah. 
So why hasn't he noticed it's gone before the riddles? Because it was in a pouch. He it put was, it in a pouch, okay. It was in a pouch, and so you can actually see it, and he even says where, like, later on, he figures out when he goes to his pouch that the ring is missing. Gotcha. Bagginses? Bagginses? We hate Sobbinses. We hate them. This is arguably the most famous part of the original book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you can tell that a lot of time was put into the scene because it is amazing. There's two parts you can't mess up in this. It's the riddles in the dark and it's smog. You cannot mess both of those up in The Hobbit. You're not allowed to if you make a movie about it. And every time I watch this scene, I think to myself, I'd have been dead. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, so not that clever. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have come up with eggs. I wouldn't have come up with a mountain. I'm like, I'm so dead. I'm so stupid. <laughs> and I put something here. I put, I could watch this scene for two hours alone. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would prefer it. Yeah. This could have been the second movie. Riddles in the dark. And I would have bought it. That's a that's a long time to be in a cave. But. Yeah, but it's circus at his finest. Yeah, no, he is. Um, I do like how how you don't know it at the at the time, but you know, hobbits they sit at home, they read, they are like well versed in literature, and if you don't know it at that time, like the Gollum at one point was a hobbit, was a hobbit, yeah. and so it's cool to have that connection, mm-hmm. even though you know he doesn't know it. We're not supposed to know it if we watch it in chronological order. But, but when you the, get to Return of the King, it'll be that nice, oh, yeah. aha moment. What was his name again as a hobbit? Smeagol. Thank you. Smeagol. Yeah, the fact that he's he's got two personalities just works so well in this, too. That scene alone <laughs> did deserve, like, an Oscar. Just the battle between, like, <laughs> him talking to himself. But also, I like it. It was it Two we Towers. Uh, I think he <laughs> did. It I think he did. It's the beginning of Return of the King. Where Whenever, it, where he's clearly t- t- uh, playing the two characters one off each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Elsewhere in the Goblin Caves, the king notices the Dwarf Swords and recoils from the sight of Orcrist, known to his people as Goblin Cleaver. He orders the dwarves killed. As the goblins move in, there is a sudden white burst and everyone is stunned. Gandalf appears and urges the dwarves to fight. Elsewhere, Gollum has tracked Bilbo down. But Bilbo accidentally slips the ring on his finger and is surprised that he has become invisible to Gollum. Meanwhile, the dwarves gather their swords and rush down the rickety wooden walkways that traverse the goblin's cavern in an exciting and physics-defying chase. I agree with the physics-defying, but it still looks funny. It Um, looks... Exactly. It looks funny. It looks fun. And funny. It could be a ride at Universal Studios. Oh, it could, totally. Mm -hmm. Did you guys find it ironic that the ring falls on Bilbo's finger the The exact same same way as it does Frodo's in Fellowship of the Ring? Or does it fall on Frodo's hand the same way? Ah, touche. Fair enough. I put down the Goblin King looks very cartoony. This, this even more so, this is where I get up again. Is it? I do. Is it because you just know that the scene's going to run for a while? So you just... So I just, I go, I make a sandwich, I go to the bathroom, or I play with the boy. Yeah. Like, this is another one, like, the whole fighting scene. And actually, kind of this, through the end of the movie, I'm kind of like, there are times where I will just skip to the end. Because it's like, all that's left is the war chase and Mm -hmm. then the fight, and I'd rather get to, like, the eagles carrying them off and all of that. So this... Spoilers. this is <laughs> this is the this is the part of the movie that kind of bogs down for me. I've loved everything up to this point, and at this point, ironically, when the action starts, yeah. I'm like, "Come on, let's just go." Yeah, <laughs> let's get this thing going. We're smog. Uh, uh, Gandalf arrives just in time again. Seriously, you're overusing Gandalf. Well, this is his journey too. This escape is my least favorite scene in the movie. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I said funny. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's such bad G- CGI. It's, not, it's, it's the fact that 
you have like a ladder landing on goblins, and then the ladder falls. They can cross the ladder. And oh well, like, that could have been worse. Boom. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I got that also. Gandalf is quite the warrior with that staff and sword. Because yeah. he's using the staff now to hit people. Yeah. Uh, the fighting here is goofy, and the action borders on the physically improbable at times. <laughs> it's magic. Uh, did Gandalf poke him in the eye with his staff? He did. <laughs> yes, he did. Like, punk. <laughs> <laughs> like, I literally started, I was like, did that just happen? Uh, they land, and again, nobody is injured. Even when the Goblin King lands on top of the bridge they sledded down the mountain with, no one is injured. Hey, dwarves <laughs> are tough sons of there's tough, and then there's just unrealistic. Have, some, have a guy go, oh, I broke my arm. Something like that. And then they pop it back into place or something, like a shoulder pop out or whatever. I'd be okay with that. Maybe they do have that. Maybe it's in the background. Maybe it's in the extended, extended, extended version. It could be. <laughs> it's in the Appendices Part 2. No, we'd be like Part 13. No, you saw all of Appendices Part 1. There's a second group out there. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, Gandalf and the dwarves reach the bottom and run past Bilbo and Gollum to escape from the Goblin Caves. Bilbo has a chance to kill Gollum, but relents and jumps just jumps over him, kicking him in the face on accident. Gollum is... We hate you! We hate you! Gollum is further enraged. Bilbo also escapes into the daylight where the goblins can't immediately follow. The goblins and trolls can't go out in the sun. Okay, we're setting up rules here for these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they follow the rules very well throughout this entire trilogy, which is nice. Yep. Um, the dwarves make it out to a wooded area and try to rest. Gandalf counts heads and notices Bilbo is missing. No one knows where he is, and Thorin suspects he ran off. He has long belief that Bilbo is not up to the task of the adventure and only longs to return to his home. Close by and still invisible, Bilbo overhears Thorin. He suddenly appears and tells Thorin and his company that he does indeed wish to return home, but he will stay with the dwarves because they have no home of their own. Thorin still seems unimpressed, but the rest of the dwarves are relieved that Bilbo has rejoined them. And Gandalf senses a powerful ring. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because he has been in the presence of, because Galadriel has a ring, Elrond has a ring, and Sauron has a ring. So he's been in the presence of the powerful rings. He feels a powerful ring. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know if it's one of the ones from men or mm-hmm. if it's a dwarven one. I think he thinks it's one of the dwarven ones, but he senses a powerful ring and he doesn't say anything. See, I think he knows for a long time that R- Frodo has a ring of power. I don't think he learns until Fellowship of the Rings that it is the ring of power. And I here's the thing. I always assumed after Lord of the Rings that the rings, all the rings, were destroyed. Because I never see any of the other rings outside of what you see in the prologue. Oh, you see them at the end of Return of the King. Do you? Oh, yeah. You see Galadriel's, you see Elrond's, and then Gandalf uh, takes the one from uh, Sauron. Okay. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I put Gandalf clearly suspects something when Bilbo puts his hand on the pocket with the ring. See, I was assume he just suspected something was in there. That was it magical. could be that I, I've I've always sort of had the belief. I'm like he feels the powerful magic. Yeah, he doesn't know what it is, but he feels the powerful magic. Then I put down that ring must mean something later on in the story. Dun dun dun. Uh, without Spoilers. warning, Azog and his warg riders appear and chase the group to the edge of a cliff where they are all climb trees. But the snarling beasts cut the branches and topple the trees. Gandalf catches a moth, whispers to it, and releases it. When Azog appears on his white warg, Thorin is stunned to see him still alive. Gandalf hurls pinecone fireballs at the enemy below, and soon the area is in flames and the animals retreat. Cornered, Thorin decides to attack and rushed, rushes towards Azog, but is knocked down and seemingly a meal for Azog's mount. 
Bilbo joins in the counterattack, saving Thorin from death. The other dwarves follow. The orcs are gaining the upper hand when a flock of huge eagles arrives and starts tossing the orcs off the cliff and carrying the dwarves away. See, Gandalf sent that mouth to get help. Finally, the last tree topples, but Gandalf is saved by an eagle. The eagles carry the group to the Carrick, a small mountain, smaller mountain in the middle of a river that offers them some safety. Thorin revives and is grateful to Bilbo. He apologizes for doubting him, saying he couldn't have been more wrong about Bilbo's bravery in battle. In the distance, Bilbo spots the lonely mountain, and they all stare in awe, realizing they're that much closer to their home. There's one scene left we'll talk about at the very end. Yeah. Uh, the final orc raid. Everyone climbs trees, but wouldn't it just be easier to cut the trees down than send the wolves up? Probably. Is that meant for dramatic? I think it follows the book. Okay. I think in the book, they are trapped up trees. Everyone's a master climber and stays in the trees. Yeah. I suppose if, if you're going to go anywhere, the only place you can go is up a tree. Yep. Um, that's one strong tree, whereas all the other trees are pretty darn weak. Do, do we <laughs> want to talk about the white elephant in the room? Which one? The eagles. I got that at the very bottom there. But if you want to talk about it now, I would more than happy to go into it. Deus I, Ex I, Eagle? I, I'm just saying, like... <laughs> How it should have ended was the first people that introduced me to this idea. Like, if you have these eagles that will save it, like intermittent, why don't they just carry Frodo and Sam to Moria? <laughs> why don't they just carry them to... Now, my own logical way is they're their own society, their own thing. They're not going to do that. They're Switzerland. They don't want to go to Erebor. They don't want, maybe they don't want the, dwar the dwarves to mess with um, Smaug, and so they won't carry them there. But they will let them decide their own fate. Maybe they're angels. Maybe they're sort of representative of the angels. And so when you aren't supposed to go yet, but like you still have more to do, then the eagles will come in and sweep. I don't know. But that's just a MacGuffin or a Deus Ex or whatever it is that we'll have to realize is, yeah, the eagles are the other thing. They can just sort of like save you at the right time. Yeah. There's also just like a very, I mean, to the casual fan it's yes. Why don't you use the Eagles earlier on? But I've, there are a few articles and I'll try to find one for next week and kind of like read up on it. But there are people that have gone like deep into like the purpose of the Eagles and like different parts of Middle Earth and the people that guard certain areas and how like it's not necessarily possible for the Eagles to like get there right away or why they can't do that or why it would have been unsafe for them or I don't know. But it is really interesting for the people who like go deep, deep into Lord of the Rings, much deeper than I do. They can explain why that's not just like the case in the beginning, other than it would have made a terrible book. I believe yeah. it is explained in the book because the eagles do speak. Oh, that's right. They do talk. I mm -hmm. forget that. Um, yeah, but here come the eagles. I'm getting that peaceful, easy feeling like nobody's ever really in danger here. <laughs> uh, why isn't Aslog finishing them off? Not a badass. Drama. He just stands there. I'm like, no, we, you do something. Thorin isn't the warrior I thought he was. Yeah. I Who was... on foot would take on a warrior on a rider? Smart, smart people making dumb decisions. Yep. Uh, the wolf is chewing on Thorin, but don't worry. He's not injured either. <laughs> uh, wolves creep up and have no clue about the dwarves running up to them on the left. A direction trick I really don't like that you commonly see in movies with similar scenes. We saw it in Jurassic Park when the directors are about to... Uh, kill the group and then the t-rex just shows up yeah like they would have noticed a giant friggin' t-rex show up yeah they do that in this film also it's a direction trick i'm assuming most people probably didn't notice it yeah um the eagles take care of most of the yorks but not azog i guess they knew we needed him for two more movies yep 
A bird flies toward the gates of the old dwarf and bangs on a nut. Instead, inside, Smog arouses from a pile of gold coins, opening one eye. And you want to talk about these coins? <laughs> they look so bad. They don't look good. <laughs> oh, my God. They look so bad. According to the good people at Rotten Tomatoes, the average grade critics gave this film was a 6.5 out of 10. The audience graded this movie at a 4.1 out of 5, so the audience liked this more than the critics. And if you do a complete average, it ends up being 73.5%. Hmm, that's a D? No, it's a C. C? In traditional terms, it's a C. I was going to say, not in the new grading scale. No, this new newfangled grading scale, which was to motivation, motivate students, is BS. Millennials. <laughs> <laughs> yep, but that's the movie. Uh, so what did you all think after watching the film? Joe? Uh, I, not the strongest of first movies in a saga. Not the strongest of first movies in a saga. doesn't mean it's the weakest. It's just not the strongest. Um, I felt there's a lot happening in one movie. Um, <laughs> I always enjoy watching the movie. May have seen it twice in theaters. I don't know, but I just thought that was a lot that happened. A lot happened. I was surprised when it ended. I was trying to figure out when are they going to break it up, and I actually thought it was going to end sooner. Oh, I thought it was going to end mm -hmm. at an earlier point. Uh, I thought it was going to end at Rivendell. So uh, that's when you would have ended it. I'm not saying that's when I would have. Oh, okay. I thought it was that's when it was going to end. And so when they ended it after that with the sort of off the, like seeing off in the distance, I'm like, hmm, okay. Um, but what did I think? I wanted to watch the other movies. Okay. Which is another reason why I was happy I waited. <laughs> but it, I, I still watched it before the other two had come out on DVD. And mm -hmm. I knew I was going to feel that way. I knew it was going to be as soon as I watched it, I would want to watch the next ones. Yeah. And the fact that I had to wait pissed me off. Oh. <laughs> well, let's play Did the Awards Get It Right? Uh, at the Academy Awards, Best Production Design, Lincoln wins uh, over Anna Karenina, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, Les Mis, and Life of Pi. L Les Mis or The Hobbit should have won. I don't think it should have been Lincoln. And I love Lincoln. It's a good movie. But in terms of production, no. I think the reason why The Hobbit didn't win is because we had seen all those designs already. Three, three movies before that. So that may have been like, we already saw this. There's really nothing new here. So they may have buckled under it. Because Lincoln, didn't they have to build all those sets? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe The Hobbit wins over Lincoln. I don't know. I, I, th I think The Hobbit got a lot of flack that year for the way that it was shot. Yeah, because they shot in 60 frames instead of 30 <laughs> frames. Uh, I, don't, I don't notice the problem with it. And People have explained it, and I've read things. I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I well, there, there was that, and there was the fact that it was also not drawn on film. It was done digitally. Yeah. And the digital, you do notice. There is a sheen on this film. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, visual effects, best visual effects, Life of Pi wins over The Hobbit, Marvel's The Avengers, Prometheus, and Snow White and the Huntsman. This is the third movie, we're, or second movie we've done now in this, this grouping. I watched Life of Pi last night. It's better than The Hobbit. The, the visual effects are. Because right. uh, the, the, the visual effects in that, they made three animals in there that look as realistic as Jungle Book. Okay. So, uh, but... Yeah, you can argue for Life of Pi, and there are arguments you can make for The Hobbit, so I don't think that they made a mistake with The Life of Pi, because I was telling you before JC got here, it's like, when I think of The Life of Pi, yeah, the story's cool, but I purely think of the effects, and I think of what they did with the water while he's in the boat. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to argue and say they got it wrong, but yeah. there are... 
there are arguments that you could make for The Hobbit. Well, if it's Snow White and the Huntsman one, that would have been a wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but as far as makeup and This one I'm excited about. I want to hear what you have no, to say about this. I, I don't think Les Mis did better because Les Mis just wasn't difficult. It was, yes, it was a lot, and yes, it was a big production, but it's a play. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't have to invent the hairstyles. They didn't have to create the makeup. Yeah. They literally just had to do what you would do for the normal stage show and do it for camera. Well, Suicide Squad won too, so. Yeah, I'm just, the fact that The Hobbit did, didn't win best makeup and hairstyling, that's just, that's a spit in the face. Uh, why do you think that they didn't win? Why do I think they didn't win? Yeah. Like, if you had to guess why The Hobbit didn't win, because I'm curious, the Academy I don't know. Awards and their assholes? Uh, they just gave every damn award to Lord of the Rings, okay? <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> the third Rebuttal. <laughs> yeah, but it was because it was the work. It was the total work. You know? No one had ever seen that before. And so my thought process was that, okay, they're going to snub it the first time, the second time. The third one, they'll give The Hobbit all the awards. That's what, that was my line of thinking with this. I think they're snooty snobs. Um, <laughs> they like musicals, and maybe they got upset that The Hobbit stopped singing after about an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Stay woke. Uh, didn't get nominated for any Golden Globes. Yeah, so uh, what worked well in this movie for you guys? Were there any favorite parts? Uh, every establishing shot is beautiful. Uh, the use of New Zealand's natural beauty is awesome. The, the Gollum riddles in the dark scene is a great introduction to a crazy character. The chemistry between Martin Freeman and Richard Armitage is fun to watch. Uh, the way the rift between the dwarves and the elves began and has evolved over time. Those are the things that I love most about this film. Uh, Joel? Um, establishing all the characters, they did a really good job at that. My favorite scene is the good morning dialogue between Gandalf <laughs> and Bilbo. Um, though the quote, the person that loves quotes in me hates that they didn't take it shot or word for word from the book, mm-hmm. but at from you know movie standpoint, love that scene. Uh, the relationship that uh, Bilbo and Gandalf have just through that and as it builds casting is great in this even you know once you watch it more than once you realize that the dwarfs are even great as far as who they play uh, Martin Freeman's addition is essential Ian McKellen is always great the riddles in the dark with Gollum is mm-hmm. one of the best Gollum scenes out of any of the <laughs> movies just Andy Serkis in general I think is an underappreciated hero in Hollywood he created mocap yeah. Like how yeah. does how does he not have a Academy an, Award? Just any award other than like a Teen's Choice Award. Like yep. if you Google Andy Circus Awards, he has like four things and you can't really name any of yeah, them. That's- he's gonna be somebody that when he's 60, 70 years old, they're gonna they're gonna re, they're gonna have the award for motion capture to call it the Andy Circus Motion Capture Award. They better because yeah. as a legacy for what that man's done. They're screwing him over as far yeah. as what he's actually done. He is I would say he is one of the most valuable pieces in Hollywood today. Yeah. And he's Underappreciated, very He's much. Definitely so. underappreciated. JC, JC, what about yours? I love the prologue. I love seeing something in the movie and then having to wonder where it came from. That didn't make me angry. I knew that they put it into the movie to tell a story of Tolkien. So when I saw something I didn't remember from the book, I instantly wanted to know where it came from. I instantly wanted to research the attention to detail. There was a button that popped the Arkenstone out of the throne. <laughs> That's just cool to me. For some reason, I thought you would like that. <laughs> Uh, every conversation between Bilbo and Gandalf was gold. Gandalf is Tolkien telling you the lessons he wanted you to understand. Everything is a memorable quote. Did you wish me a good morning or were you just (laughs) saying it simply was a morning to be good on? Uh, this will be good for you and most amusing for me. Uh, can you promise me I will come back? No. And if you do, you won't be the same. 
And I love that quote because it's foreshadowing. That simple phrase sums up the entire Middle Earth saga from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. All of it is summed up in that phrase. Uh, Beaufort, everything he says is great. I love Jimmy Nesbitt. Uh, Crochet, oh, it's a great game if you have the balls for it. Um, (laughs) And then he says, I wish you the best. I really do. And And you feel the emotion in his eyes like he's tearing up and... He is he is upset that Bilbo is leaving, and he's also upset because Bilbo just told him, yeah, you don't have a home to go back to, and he's sort of realizing, yeah, I don't, which is why I'm on this quest. And um, all of the walking shots after Rivendell, all of scene 88 where they're running around, and I like the Thunder Battle. I thought it was pretty cool. All right. So well, what did not work in this movie for you guys? Okay. Uh, the movie took a while to get started after the prologue. Uh, no real character development for the dwarves. Not really the fault of anyone except that instead of adding all the extra material from the appendices, Jackson could have had us spend more time with individual dwarves getting to know them. The dwarf song is a repeat of the prologue, so do you need the prologue or do you need the song? We talked about that earlier. Yeah. Uh, the visuals when it came to close-up shots of animated characters not named Gollum falls a bit short for me. Sometimes it borders on cartoony in the action or the visuals. Uh, a lot of deus ex machina is used. And the Goblin Escape scene is not for an adult audience. So that's me. Uh, Joel? Um, the things that I found that I didn't that didn't work for me are all preferential things. It's not that they were wrong. It's just that, oh, I if I were in charge, I would have done it this way. But if I were in charge, this movie wouldn't have been made. Um, <laughs> I, I do love how they stayed true to the book, kind of what I said earlier with the mountain rock fight. But for some reason, it just sticks out to me and... I'm like, uh, I mean, you could get rid of it, but when you're watching, you're like, yeah, but it looks cool. You know, (laughs) um, that's the biggest thing that didn't work for me there. There's a lot going on. And so for, I think the more simple minded, the casual audience, it's a lot to take in all at once, Mm -hmm. but I think it does stretch out to a more broad audience. And I'll get to that in a second, but there is just a lot that goes on and there's a lot to keep up with. And for kids, for a, book that was made for kids that part of it i don't think does i don't think that's does is done well enough for the kids to be able to keep up with all right jc uh some cgi characters against cgi backgrounds or cgi characters against the real new zealand background made everything on the screen look fake if you mix and match them like if you had like the white council there were scenes where you're looking at the real new zealand but it looks fake because you have CGI Sauron in there. Or you're looking at CGI trolls against the real New Zealand and it just it looks bad. Um, so that flip-flopped. Um, at times, uh, the gold looked too CGI, making it look fake, um, which they would ironically improve in the second movie. Some pacing issues. And two things that really bugged me that will also bug me in Lord of the Rings is Glamdring and Orchrist. They say that they are elven swords that will glow blue. Sting is the only sword in the entire movies, all six films, that glows blue. That's a good point. Glamdring never does. Orcris never does. And I don't know if it's an oversight. I don't know if it was an actual choice. And if it was, why even throw throw that phrase in the movie at all? Just tell him it's about Sting, but he says it about all elven blades. Well, if that's the fact, then... Anduril, Narsil, all of them should be glowing blue, and they're not. And huh, that's I never fair. thought of that. That's a simple thing that kind of. Yeah, I never me. thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, In fact, I didn't even realize that they said that about the other swords. 
Yeah. Well, it, they're el- I, they're of elvish make, well, which means they glow blue and orcs or goblins are around. Maybe right. it's just the letter openers. Maybe it is. It's I, the letter I mean, openers. Maybe there maybe there is a reason, but it's never told in the appendices and it's never told to me as so like that's a MacGuffin to me. That's something I'm just supposed to believe. Gotcha. So well, who's the audience for this movie? Uh for me it's children who are ready to be introduced to Middle Earth. It's a, I think it, I think that's the perfect audience for this. If you got a kid and you're ready to introduce him to Middle Earth, you start with The Hobbit. Yeah, yep. I agree. Um, I'm going to second that. And just, you know, Tolkien fans in general. This is, if you are interested in Lord of the Rings, but you don't have the attention span, or maybe you want something that's much more lighthearted, I think it's for people who love that universe, but want something that's not as dark and heavy. Yeah, I 100% agree with both of you. I think it's for kids who want to be introduced to Middle Earth, and I feel like it's for people who want to be introduced to Tolkien in yeah. his world. All right, so uh, let's move on to movie report card A, B, C, D, F in the fantasy film genre. Joe? <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I'm reminded of a similar sagas that were based on books and or material they had or had been written uh, or put out in the first movies. Uh, Phantom Menace, the Star Wars saga uh sorcerer stone the first in that film uh, legacy hunger games and twilight the hobbit an unexpected journey is better than hunger games and twilight but i don't think it's as good as sorcerer stone and phantom menace it's right in the middle in that it does equally good things and bad things as an introductory chapter to the story you get to know three characters in thorin gandalf and bilbo but the rest of the dwarves have very little character development you spend more time getting ready for the next scene than you do getting invested in the characters you're going to spend three movies with. Yes, there's a stretching of the material from the books, and a lot of Tolkien mythology is added in to add to the Middle-Earth history. But it's time I would have rather spent getting to know the characters. The cinematography is state-of-the-art. The movie's landscape shots are so beautiful it serves as a commercial to visit New Zealand. However, there is an over-reliance on CGI and digital effects, which gives this movie an unnerving sheen in every scene that is not an establishing shot. It's the same sheen that many people complain about with the Star Wars prequels. Sometimes film just works better. We are exposed to different cultures of Middle Earth and the social hierarchy inherent there. Goes wizards on top, elves, dwarves, men, orcs, goblins, hobbits. I put hobbits on the bottom because nobody really knows they're there. (laughs) Um, Like a good introduction, it gives us questions that require answering in future installments. Will Thorin and his group get to the secret door in time? Will they reclaim Erebor from Smog? Will the dwarves and elves ever get along? The difference is that none of these questions are real mysteries because Peter Jackson has faithfully adapted a children's book. The answer to each of the questions above is, of course, because there's no real danger here. Bilbo, our main character, is protected by the plot. You see him old at the beginning of the movie, so you know he lives. Because of that, you never really feel like he's ever in peril. As for the dwarves and Gandalf, nobody gets hurt, nobody gets injured, nobody dies, and everything seems to work out through coincidence or magic. I'm left at the end of the film wanting to watch the next movies, but not because I want to know what happens, but because I want to see how they do a dragon, and I want to see if the dwarves find that Arkenstone again and whether it will corrupt the dwarves again. As good as the story is, it is hampered by the over-reliance on CGI when they probably could have used practical effects, and it reminds me of the Jeff Goldblum quote, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. (laughs) But otherwise, this is a good story that has pacing problems. It's not awful. Like critics have said, it's not awful. Not pantheon-worthy either. Critics seem to forget that this was an adaptation of a children's book. It was not going to be Lord of the Rings. But I think a lot of children would get bored because of the pacing. Two hours and 40 minutes is a long time for a kid to sit. Yep. This is a C. Okay. 
Uh, Joel? Um, there's a lot of good that goes in with this movie. Uh, I'm going to agree that, yes, there are pacing issues, but I don't think if we're going to rank them, you know, one through six on pacing issues, I think it's at the top of being one of the best because it's hard to get through Fellowship of the Ring for me. I mean, Council of Elrond is what? Out of, say, of, of, out of six, 46 chapters, they don't actually start moving on their mission until chapter 28, 29. Yeah. And so I was like, whew. In this one, at least, you, you're seeing history at the beginning, and then you get the character interactions. And although it is slow to get started, you're not meeting just, okay, this hobbit, then another hobbit, then another hobbit. And I, I can't compare it to a movie we haven't talked about yet, but you get to meet hobbits and then you meet the wizard and then you get to meet the dwarves and so for me and me liking more relational things i love how this movie starts and how you see the hobbit being tested from the very beginning with his comfort zone that works really well for me um but there there's a lot that goes on in this movie i wrote down bilbo so the all the the things that all the directions your mind goes you're looking for Bil bilbo seeking himself Bilbo also seeking acceptance from Thorin. Thorin batting his internal darkness. Thorin seeking, seeking redemption for his family, both in mental health and in pride. Thorin avoiding the orcs. The dwarf seeking home. And Gandalf trying to help everybody bring it all together. There's a lot to go on. And so, in the back of my mind, yeah, no one is in danger but you're always on edge because you don't know which of those plot holes is going to attack you next you know the cgi is okay there's some of it that's done really well when we're talking about Gollum, but there's some of it that really just stands out and you wish that they could have had a little bit more time and made it look more realistic the lines are great and i think that's one of the best parts about this movie is that it's lighthearted. it was a kid's book and they did a good job at not taking it too seriously and taking it too dark but that gets me to the audience aspect of it. Are you going towards kids or are you going towards the adults that love Lord of the Rings? I personally think that there is a decent balance between the two. You can take your kids to the, see this movie at a fair enough age. It's not for every child and they're not going to get it right away. But even if you're an adult, you don't understand Tolkien the first time. Um, it's also PG-13. Right. Which... That's what, I mean, with a lot of superhero movies, they're doing that because you can get away with more with PG-13. So parents are watching and saying, well, it's nothing too bad for our kids. And in the regards of a fantasy genre, the definition of fantasy is actively imagining things, especially po things that are impossible or improbable. This movie is thing full of things that are impossible or improbable that you say, I just I don't know. But. There's a lot of stuff in that's what fantasy is. It is improbable. It is impossible. If we're going based on a standalone film, I'm going to, it's well above average. I love this movie, but if it's standing by itself, it does not take all, it does not bring full resolution to all of those things. I'm going to give it a B plus and you know, from the aspect of all of them. Yeah, it might be, a minus close to that but as far as looking at it as a standalone film you need the other movies to follow it if you want to have full resolution so you want to give it an a minus since we're grading it as a whole as a piece of a whole no because cgi still the cgi oh. hiccups and i understand it wasn't all jackson's fault because you know there were time frames and it got started off on a rocky path uh, <laughs> yes it does so it's like and like it's hard. You hate to hold that against somebody when it wasn't his fault, no. but 
It is what was released. It was the direction that they went. If they fix some of those things, I think it is an A. If they maybe clear up who it's necessarily for, you know, that could smooth it out. But you could say that with any movie. I still think it is a well above average film and earns a B plus. Okay. <laughs> All right. JC, go for it. This movie is a, is one I need to preface my appreciation for by mentioning Lord of the Rings first. <clears throat> I was first introduced to Middle Earth by a classmate of mine in college. We were studying for an organic chemistry test, and we were burnt out. She asked our group if we wanted to watch The Fellowship of the Ring. I said yes. The whole way through the, through the movie, I was enthralled. When Gandalf fell, I got tears in my eyes, and my friend said, You know he comes back, right? I was shocked. As she was when she found out this was my first introduction to Middle-earth. I was instantly hooked. I checked out all of the books. I read all of them instantly. I bought the theatrical versions. Then the extended editions come, came out. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> these, these changed movies for me. You've heard me say many times on this podcast that I want more story. I want more characters. That's because of the Lord of the Rings extended editions. Had they never been made, I would have never known that these were the types of movies I longed for. Long epics that are even longer, that require an even longer walk through how they did it or how they made it. I have grown to love and appreciate this movie and the others because I've spent so much time watching them make them. I quote, almost feel like I went on the journey with them. I know I didn't, but I felt, <laughs> but I felt like I was a fly on the wall at the rap party after a play or a musical show that I wasn't in. I did musicals when I was a kid, and I would live and breathe it for months, and then it was over, and you always got that sort of pit at the end like, you're missing something. That's how I feel when I watch these appendices in these movies. These movies changed people's lives, and I watch them go through it, and I'm affected, and so it's hard for me to separate the emotions I feel watching these movies with the, rec rec with the critiques required of a podcast. I understand and see some flaws, but having known why and how they did things, all I feel is love for these movies. But love does not make it perfect. My grade is a B+. Plus. Oh, okay. So there you go. Uh, right. B plus, B plus, and of course, I'm the evil C. Uh, <laughs> uh, so if this movie was released on Blu-ray, would you buy it, bin it, stream it, borrow it, or forget about it, Joe? Okay. I would... I put borrow it, and I put that because my thinking was not in the right spot. At the time, I was thinking to myself, okay, it's a trilogy, but it's not. It's a piece of the whole. I don't want to buy it, uh, I don't want to stream. I would stream it until it wasn't available on streaming. Then I would bin it probably, but I, I would bin it. I would, I would, I, <laughs> I would, <laughs> if I said every single one yet, <laughs> eh, forget about it. No, uh, I, I'm, oh shoot. <sighs> if it's in the bargain bin, go get it. It bin it, bin it, bin it, bin it, bin it. Okay. Joel. <laughs> this, this is one of the few movies that I did buy as soon as I could. And I bought the extended editions. It's, I've got all the discs. I've started watching the appendices and the digital's now on my iPad. So. Yep. Yeah, buy it and buy the extended edition. Do not buy the theatricals. Buy the extended editions. I think I have to agree with you with that. And that yeah. If you're going to buy it, buy the extended version. Yep. That's all we've got time for today, Movie Planeteers. Next time we get together, we will continue our look at the Tolkien saga with The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. 
You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and give us a four or five star review. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, and follow the Instagram. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and happy movie watching. <laughs>